right, so went through a little Alfred Hitchcock marathon. Uh, I guess uh, I guess I just want to start with like uh, we can talk about him a little bit. I know he got started. Uh, he was a uh, created credits, opening credits for films. Well, he actually created the titles for side titles. Films, yeah, so. title cards. Yeah. I guess they called them the intertitles or the cards that would have, and he would do the decorations around the titles uh, as well. Apparently, he had some experience as a commercial artist. He did uh, advertising art for a, a cable company, you know, like the big cables that they uh, lay in roads. Yeah. Uh, he did that for a while, and I guess that was his uh, entree into um, uh, the British uh, studios. I think he worked for a time for a German studio as well. I think that might have come a little later. I think initially he started doing those titles in, uh, in, for a British film company. Uh, the British uh, film company at some point, I think, became an American film company. It was Famous Players Lasky was the name of the American company. Yeah. Because he talked about how essentially uh, uh, when he went to work, he was going to America because everything all the people he was working with were Americans and everything was done the American way. And he preferred, he was a big film fan, theater and film, but especially film. And he said that he preferred the American films. Back then, almost everybody did because the British films, they had a system, a quota system. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but the American film industry became so dominant at a certain point that uh, certain countries had quotas. The British film company was protected by a quota uh, uh, there had to be so many uh, uh, British-made films released every year. I guess this this was the distributor's responsibility. They had to make sure that they produced a certain number of British films before they could release the American films. Right. But he was working for one of the British companies that was actually uh, run by an American company. I think all the major studios eventually had British uh, branches. Uh, so he worked his way up, according to his interview with Truffaut, and I guess that's something to mention. <clears throat> I don't know if you ever read this book. No, I have not. This was a pretty big deal, and it's the Francois Truffaut, the French film director, one of the new wave French film directors. Uh, he was a big Hitchcock fan, and when he was working as a critic before he became a famous filmmaker, he was one of the uh, French uh, critics that championed uh, Hitchcock and you know, used the dreaded A word, the auteur. Word. <laughs> yeah. And uh, he was a, uh, he sat, he met Hitchcock around the time, I guess he was doing, it wasn't Rear Window, I think it was a little later than that. Might've been Vertigo or uh, somewhere in that period, sometime in the sixties, I guess. I think it was in 62, actually. So whatever film Hitchcock was doing around that. Uh, and he interviewed him for about uh, two or three days, I guess. They recorded the interviews and then he made a, a, a book out of it. A trend, he trend, had the conversations transcribed and he edited it and he made a book out of it, which was a big bestseller. Um, towards the end of his life, he didn't live that old, uh, to a very old age. I think Truffaut died when he was in his uh, mid fifties. But one of the last things he did was an updated version of, uh, of that book, which covered the films that Hitch hadn't made uh, up to that point. Right. 
So it was, uh, it's interesting to hear the the, the original tape recordings are available online, and I actually spent, I've listened to them all in the past, but I yeah. spent some time skipping around listening to bits and pieces of them today. And uh, he Hitchcock claims he never really uh, saw himself as a director. He never imagined he'd be a director. Uh, but opportunities presented themselves and because of his love of film. And I guess most importantly, because he actually had some theories. He actually had some ideas about yeah. how stories should be told. And that's evident really from some of the earliest silent films that he did. Uh, one of the uh, film, early films that he did, one of the silent films, was called The Lodger. And uh, it was... Uh, sort of uh, it alluded to the Jack the Ripper murders. It's about a boarding house where they begin to suspect that one of the, one of the boarders is Jack the Ripper. Yeah. And he used all sorts of very interesting techniques uh, to build the suspense and to make it an, an interesting and exciting movie. Uh, the company that uh, financed the thing, when the big shots looked at it, they said, it's unreleasable, terrible movie. It's a, they put it on the shelf for a couple of months. And uh, after a while, they went back to it and they said, well, we spent money on this. I guess we have to release it in some form. They put it out and it was acclaimed as the best British film ever right, made. Right, yeah. Now, his first, I guess his first film was The Pleasure Garden. Yeah. That was his first silent film. I've never seen it. But, I didn't uh, watch it either. I didn't go back too far in I, the library. I didn't even, uh, for this viewing, for this uh, show, I didn't even go back to uh, The Lodger. Uh, because there's so many other movies that, you know, you can see the same ideas done, you know, full scale, so to speak, because he was sort of constantly developing the ideas that he had throughout his career. Uh, you can see, for instance, with some of the movies he did in the 30s, when he really first started to hit his stride with those British films like mm -hmm. The 39 Steps and Man Who Knew Too Much and The Lady Vanishes, uh, you can see things uh, that he would be doing later in movies like North by Northwest. And, yeah. Uh, I think the, I want to say the earliest one I watched may have been Murder, Murder. Oh, you watched that, that far back? Well, I went by, I think I went, I think that was probably the earliest one I watched of his, but I didn't make it all the way through it. <laughs> I found it kind of boring. <laughs> it was a silent movie? No, it wasn't a silent movie. Oh. I just couldn't. Well, I just couldn't get into it. I don't know if I. I don't know if I was burnt out on Hitchcock by that point. Well, that's <laughs> or possible. If it was just the. Yeah. I don't know. It just. It just didn't. It didn't see. I don't know. I just couldn't get into it. Because I mean, I think one of the uh, brilliant things about his career is that he recognized that he had a special uh, skill, a special genius for a certain type of story, and he tried to stick to that. There were exceptions. You know, there were little. Uh, uh, you know, instances where he went and tried different things, especially earlier in his career. But the best stuff he did usually fits into that uh, genre. I mean, you could say in a sense that he invented uh, some subgenres. There really weren't any horror movies like Psycho before right. that film yeah. was made. And there really weren't any horror movies or science fiction movies like The Birds before that movie was made. He always had a reputation as being a horror filmmaker, probably because of those two films. Yeah, I would say because, yeah, Psycho and the Birds. Right, but he really wasn't. I mean, no. most of his films not really have no uh, supernatural aspect to them and uh, they're not really loaded with a lot of gore or anything like that. Frenzy probably would be the only other one, the only other film that really would fit into that category. 
uh, that's next to last film. Uh, but so, uh, so many of his films are, you know, so delightful and the influence that he had, not just being responsible for those two subgenres of the, the slasher movie yeah. and the, the nature attacks uh, movie, <laughs> but you could, you could argue that the whole uh, James Bond series and all the imitations of the James Bond series are basically just an attempt to do Hitchcock. Yeah. Uh, Cary Grant was originally, he was a friend of Cubby Broccoli's, the producer of the Bond films. And he was originally considered, and he just didn't want to do multiple films. He was, I think he felt that he was too old when he did North by Northwest. Yeah. He was 55 when he did North by Northwest. And he wasn't, he was looking a little bit long in the tooth by that point. So the idea of doing a series of movies uh, starting in 1962 when the Bond series started, that probably didn't appeal to him. And it probably wouldn't have worked. Although I think when you look at movies like Notorious, you could see how he would, uh, he would have made a fantastic James Bond. Yeah. Uh, really, the Bond they ended up with, Sean Connery, was sort of modeled on Cary Grant in that movie. It's not so much modeled on the Cary Grant in North by Northwest, because that character is uh, kind of, you know, floundering. Yeah, his, maybe a little bit of a, to catch a thief. To catch a thief, yes. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff in those films and Notorious, To Catch a Thief, and North by Northwest, where just the shots alone, the way they're composed, remind me of scenes and from Russia with Love and Doctor No yeah. and Goldfinger. So that influence was definitely very strong. And of course, in From Russia with Love, they even go so far as to actually duplicate the famous crop duster uh, scene with uh, the crop duster chasing yeah. Cary Grant in the fields. So it wasn't even something they were trying to hide. Uh, but um, so he had a tremendous influence. And I guess you could also say that there's this whole uh, genre of films that weren't made by Hitchcock, but which are sort of Hitchcockian. Hitchcockian yeah. films, you know? uh, matter of fact, some of the, I think, Cary, I think it was Cary Grant that did one charade. Was it? Was, was Sur- that yeah, yeah. And that was definitely an attempt to capture a, a Hitchcockian feel. And there were a bunch of others. You know? Yeah, well, I noticed whenever I was watching some of these on some of the streaming services, a lot of the recommendations were other films that weren't Hitchcock, right. but <laughs> were in that same influence or vein. Yeah. yeah, you could also say the Giallo uh, movies, uh, the Italian horror movies or slasher movies, uh, they were descended from uh, Marnie. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of stuff in Marnie that uh, even more so you would think, well, maybe they're imitating Psycho, but you look at the, the way they are shot and the, and the use of color, and it's really more uh, Marnie that they're uh, that they're, you know, going for copying. Yeah. yeah, Marnie, I never particularly cared for as a Hitchcock film. It's got a lot of interesting stuff in it, but it seems to me that uh, uh, the uh, for, when he gets it goes too far with the Freudian explanations, yeah, runs into trouble, you know. I mean, that's always one of the criticisms that people make about Psycho is that after the film should be over, over, yeah, you have uh, five minutes of Simon Oakland as a psychiatrist describing what was wrong with uh, Norman Bates and why he did what he did, which I don't think is as terrible as some people feel. No, I don't mind it. No, even though I said I would change that ending, I would have left that on there, obviously. Yeah, well, it, it, it he saves it at the very end by going back to Norman Bates now completely in, in, the, yeah. in the mind of his mother, uh, you know, 
So doing that uh, rather chilling thing of sort of staring at the camera and saying, I won't even hurt a fly, you know, that is, that's a nice way to send the audience out. But that movie was really shocking. I mean, we're jumping way ahead. We're jumping but yeah. to this, uh, to uh, one of his later successes. Well, well, what was your, what was your first Hitchcock film you saw? Jeez, that's an interesting question. <laughs> as a, as a kid, uh, uh, I do remember the first time I saw Psycho on TV as a kid. And I remember being very impressed by it. Uh, but I probably had seen other Hitchcock movies before that, uh, but I couldn't tell you which ones. So you, you've probably seen them and just didn't know at the time they were Hitchcock or you just can't remember? Well, I knew who he was, but right. I probably knew who he was more from the TV show, which I watched all the Correct. time. Yeah. That was in constant uh, syndication from the moment it went off the network. It was, seemed to be on constantly. Uh, I think it might have been on daily on uh, some of the local stations here in new york right yeah so uh i certainly was familiar with him and he was kind of rare in that sense uh at that time there were directors that people knew there were hollywood directors that you knew their names but there wasn't any hollywood director who was such a fully formed character but, yeah they had their own tv show yeah <laughs> had their own tv show he had his own mystery magazine he had a line of of books uh, that went on for quite a while. It was quite successful. Uh, I have a couple of, I didn't drag them down, but right. <laughs> uh, I would buy those as a kid and just because I was intrigued by the covers. Uh, but yeah, he, and I always wondered, and this is something I never hear people speak about, uh, the character that he developed for himself. Uh, I wonder where that came from. Was it, who was, yeah, right. was it his father? Uh, was it his sort of uh, parody of a, a British gentleman, uh, because he has that sort of formality. Right, yeah. You know? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, you know. And he has the black suit, almost makes him look like an undertaker. And when he stands, he always stands with his hands like this in front of him. Right. Uh, possibly the only comfortable way for a man with a belly like that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, I don't, I, it's interesting. A friend of mine, I was speaking about this with, with a friend of mine earlier, and he uh, seemed to think that that was a character that was developed for his uh, introductions on the TV show. But it seems to me that the, almost from the first episode of the TV show, the writers of those introductions were writing to a pre-established character. Character, yeah. That, I mean, and the, the jokes wouldn't have worked if people didn't know what Hitchcock was supposed to be like. So it must have been something that he had been developing for a long time in interviews and things like that before the TV show came along. I always wondered why he would choose. I mean, obviously, he was not a, a, a physically attractive man. Right? <laughs> yeah. But uh, to choose to be such a, an eccentric figure, to you know, a, a Shadow of a Doubt, which is one of the movies I watched for this episode, which I think is a terrific film. Uh, I was actually surprised going back to it to see how good it was. But there's the character, I don't know if you caught it, but there's a character in that film, uh, the father of the, the family that uh, Joseph Cotton intrudes into. Right. The father is always spending time with a neighbor talking about ways to kill people, right? great you know, techniques for murders. Like that, I guess they're thinking of maybe being mystery writers or something like that. Yeah. But they're always exchanging stories about what the easiest way to kill somebody would be or uh what wh how to avoid detection you know and that sort of thing and to me that guy is hitchcock hitchcock yeah. is a sort of outwardly 
conservative and boring figure who's busy up here thinking about bumping people off and, and you know, uh, all sorts of macabre and, and morbid uh, things. Uh, he always claimed that he was uh, scared. The one thing he was scared of, and that was a question I was asked of him a lot because he had this reputation of making scary movies, which right. really wasn't true, sure. <laughs> uh, but uh, up until Psycho at least. Uh, but he, he would always answer by saying that the one thing that always scared him was the police. Uh, and not because he was guilty, it's just that uh, he couldn't bear the suspense. He couldn't bear this, like when he was getting a ticket or something, he couldn't bear the suspense of yeah. waiting to see what was going to happen. Uh, of course, a lot of the things that Hitchcock repeated over and over again in his interviews, you have to take with a grain of salt because it may all be part of building that character. Character, yeah. He also told the story about how as a child, uh, this might explain his fear of the police. His father sent him along to the police station with a note and the note, uh, the officer constable read the note and put him in prison and said, this is what we do to little, with bad little boys and kept him in, the, in, in jail for five minutes and then let him go. And apparently that was such a scary, according to Hitchcock, that was such a scary event in his life that it, uh, it made him, it gave him this mortal fear of police, police officers. And I guess you could also say it, it gave him the first inkling of what type of stories he'd like to tell. Yeah. So many of his movies are about the wrong man, right? The wrong guy yeah. being accused, or, you know, over and over again. North by Northwest, 39 Steps, um, uh, I Confess, The Wrong Man actually is a, a movie with that title. Uh, almost every film he, uh, he, he's done has at least one character who's uh, being mistakenly accused of something. Yeah, and Darling for Murder was another one. Island for murder, yeah. Uh, 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 you, you can't get away from it in his movies. You can't get away from that anymore than you can get away from uh, fearsome portrayals of mothers. Yeah. <laughs> North by Northwest is the only one where the mother isn't that much of a monster. But in many of his films, you know, the, the, the mother figure is uh, either a, a bizarre eccentric uh, or somebody who's actually dangerous, like Notor in, in, in Notorious. Yeah. And I love the way he introduces the mother character in Notorious by having that shot where she, she's seen at the top of the stairs and she comes all the way down the stairs and comes right up at her close up in the camera. And yeah. <laughs> she's sort of staring at it. I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an introduction that's worthy of Dracula, you know. But uh, Notorious is one of my favorites. Uh, I don't know how you feel about it, but I've always felt that that's, that's Hitchcock at his smartest, his most sophisticated, and his most understated. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a good one. I guess my thing. I guess um, I guess I'm I'm a f bigger fan of his later films, which is what because so this is the first, the very first Hitchcock film that I ever saw was oh, the yeah, Window. Yeah, I saw it before The Birds or before Psycho. So this right here is like my favorite, and that's to me. Whenever you say Hitchcock, I think Rear Window. Well, that is Psycho with the Birds. To me, that's like the perfect movie, and that's because I saw it. That's the first one I saw when I was a kid. When I saw it, so. Yeah, I, I agree. That's right up near the top of my list, too. Uh, it's sometimes it's hard to determine which one you think is best. And that's why these uh, these uh, polls that they do of, of uh, critics always seem kind of silly to me because yeah. uh, they say that Vertigo is the best film of all time. It displaced Citizen Kane. That's the greatest movie ever made. 
Well, I like vertigo. There's a lot of interesting things. It's something that you can talk about endlessly, but I don't think it's the best movie ever made. And I don't even think it's the best Hitchcock film. So uh, I, I think the problem with those polls is that, uh, uh, if I understand correctly, they uh, poll like 100 or 200 uh, critics. And apparently the numbers varied over time. Right. Now it's somewhere around 150, 200, something like that. And they, they don't take the number one from each list because that wouldn't be workable. What they do is they look to see how many times certain films appear on, on the list, list. Yeah. anywhere on the list. right? So a lot of those critics, you could probably ask those 200 critics, do you think Vertigo is the best film ever made? And they would probably say, no, I had that at number 10 or 12 or 20 yeah. or 50. But because it's on everybody's list, it ends up being the number one film. Uh, I think it, there's a lot of problems with Vertigo and I, I didn't used to like it. Uh, uh, when, I, when I was uh, younger in the 80s, uh, a bunch of films that Hitchcock had done that he uh, sort of had partial or complete ownership with uh, ownership of, uh, he took them out of release. Right. And when they, in the eighties, I guess he had passed away by that point. I think he died he, in 1980. Yeah. He died in 1980. So this would have been after his death. They really re-released all of these films, almost as if they were new releases and they put them out as a big package. So you could go to your theater, the local theater, every every week or every month however long they, uh, the series went on and they released rear window they released rope they re-released um trouble with harry uh the remake of man who knew too much and i guess that's it was there another one from that period? oh and dial in for murder yeah and apparently those were all movies that hitchcock for some reason or another ended up with ownership of and the first one i went to see was rear window and it was with a packed audience and it was it went over like gangbusters. Everybody thought it was fantastic. Yeah. And so everybody came back for the, for the, for the other Hitchcock. For the other ones, yeah. And the other ones were not so good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I have an appreciation for Rope. I think that's an interesting experiment. I think it's quite effective as a, as a, as a presentation of a stage drama. Yeah. Might be the best movie ever made from a, just a, uh, a recording, so to speak, of a stage drama. Yeah. Uh, no, it, it, I guess it's, everybody says, oh, it's done in one shot. Not really true. And I'm like, not really, because they were shooting on the film. <laughs> and you can't do, you can't do that well, much. Well, besides, the, I mean, the, the thing that he explained was that they came up with this technique. They had 10 minute uh, uh, rolls of film. So they could shoot for 10 minutes continuously. And then he would have the camera move. Move, right. Somebody was standing in front of it, and that would whether be they would stop, they would reload the camera, and then they would continue. Uh, but actually, there are actual cuts in the movie that nobody yeah. ever talks about. Never, yeah. Uh, why that isn't more widely discussed, I don't know. I don't know if Hitchcock, I assume Hitchcock did that uh, purposely. Yeah. Must have said there are some. But I mean, that wasn't like that wasn't the selling point when it came out, was it? Like. Oh, we filmed this in one shot, or was that just something people talk about afterwards? No, I think it might. I mean, I haven't seen any advertising from it, but I have a yeah. feeling it must have been discussed in the press because why go through all that trouble if you're not going to let people know that you did it all in one shot? Right. I mean, they even went to the trouble of building that big cyclorama of the city behind it, and they had uh, a whole system of dimmers that were going to turn the lights down as, the, as they got on to dusk, and mm -hmm. they had... Uh, um, uh, clouds made out of cotton or something that would be pulled across the, you know, to, so to simulate crowds, uh, clouds moving across the sky. 
so they went through a lot of trouble to give it a feeling of something that was actually happening in the moment. Yeah. Uh, and I think they succeeded. It actually is quite, uh, oh, yeah. quite engrossing as a result of that. You know, you, you keep waiting uh, be, uh, because of the nature of the story. See, this is something that Hitchcock also said about Dial M for Murder. Uh, Truffaut asked him why he didn't open that up, you know, which is what they would usually do when they would acquire a, a play. If it was a successful play, they would say, okay, well, we got the germ of the story and now we'll open it up. We'll do the scenes outside and hang it yeah. on the bridge or, you know, going underwater or wherever they had to go. Right. And usually, according to Hitchcock, and I agree with him, it takes the air out of the thing. Oh, yeah. It needs to, a uh, stage piece works on stage. And if you take it out of that environment, if you try to do it on the streets or, you know, in exotic locations, then you might just as well not do it because all the problems that they've solved in creating that successful play, you're throwing away all the solutions that they get. Yeah. Yeah. Rope, dying for murder, rear window, one location. That's like, you're, because you're there. You're not, you know what I'm saying? You're in that room with Jimmy Stewart with his broken leg. Just with him the whole time. It makes right. you, you know, you're more, you're not, you know, they're not traveling around you know, anywhere else. I think it's, I think that's more effective to the one, one location shots, yeah. films like that. And a skill, uh, the storytelling skill to be able to tell something that is so simple and make it and, and still make it so cinematic. You know, it's never, not for an instant, is it boring? You're completely no, no, no. caught up in it. Or, and the humor, the, the script is delightful. That's another thing I would say. Hitchcock's best films are the films where he had great source material. Yeah. You know, in that case, in Rear Window, they had a Cornell Woolrich. Uh, it was a short story. Right. Short story from, uh, was it a paper or? It was probably published in a, in a paper, pulp magazine or something like that. Yeah, or it yeah. might have been a paperback original. It is now. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's in a it's in a collection of uh, Cornell Woolrich uh, stories, but the the basic concept was in that story, and then he took it and went yeah, with it. Yeah, did something completely. Uh, but just like I mean, just like whenever we were talking about Rosemary's Baby, his apartment. I'm like, I want to live in that apartment. <laughs> and, you know, that's like a great little bachelor apartment. Yeah, and it's a it's a nice thing to look out on to be able to see all those different stories happening. Yeah, uh, all I mean him it. and. Uh, uh grace kelly they were just perfect oh, yeah. great grace kelly i have to say in mirror window and in to catch a thief was there ever a more extraordinarily beautiful woman yeah no. it's just absolutely dazzling and there's nothing artificial about her you know, no. she, even with all the makeup and the jewelry and the, and the costuming she seems like uh, you know a real human being yeah now when I, when I watched it again today whenever the opening scene where they're showing you all the people in the uh yeah, that's what the opening credits are, just, you know, showing everybody. Right. For some reason, I kept thinking this is, these characters feel like they should be, like, in a Disney cartoon. <laughs> because they're all, you know, like, the, the one, the torso, the, the, you know, she's the dancer. She's just dancing the, the whole time. No matter what she's doing, she's dancing. Then you got the musician who's always at the piano. And I was like, that's, you, right. know, the, you know, the way those characters, so they felt like cartoon characters, but they all felt real. Okay. I mean, his, uh, the morning place is nurse that comes in. I mean, she was just... Alma Ritter. Yeah, yeah, she's just great. She, some of her dialogue is just brilliant, yeah. And, and even when I saw it in the 80s, which is some time removed from when the, when the movie yeah. was made, the audience was still roaring with laughter at some of her remarks. Yeah, none of... I mean, none of it feels... It doesn't feel, you know... I guess, you know, like... Uh, 
Well, not like not like camp. I don't want to say campy, but no, it doesn't no. feel uh, like a joke or you know, right. it's just it's real. It just feels like real people. Well, all of Hitchcock's films, the, the best ones, but really all of them, uh, because they always had there was always a consistent level of quality, even in the lesser films. Uh, the thing I would say about it is there was a period uh, uh, in Hollywood when. They really learned how to make certain type of entertainment. You know, yeah. they knew how to make movies a certain way. They had developed a, a real uh, technique that was, you know, finely honed. And Hitchcock was the best practitioner of that. Oh, yeah. And he only started to lose his way when the approach to filmmaking started to change. To change, yeah. And interesting, it was interestingly, it was people like Francois Truffaut, who was in the forefront of moving away from the Hitchcockian uh, style of filmmaking. Uh, the French filmmakers and the Italian filmmakers were going for more a more realistic feel. And that was a big problem, I think, with Hitchcock, uh, with films like Topaz and Torn Curtain. You know, these are films that are made well into that time when everybody else is making things more realistically. Yeah. And he's making movies that still look like movies that might have been done in the mid, mid-50s. Uh, the color and the lighting and everything is just not, you know, not the way movies were being made at that time. So with Frenzy, there was the big change. Somebody must have finally convinced him that, Hitch, we can't shoot these movies this way. Yeah. It's not the way they're being done. I would say even Vertigo is, uh, you know, it's a beautiful looking film. Oh, yeah. That's a, uh, what was his, uh, who was his cinematographer? That was like his best work. Uh, Robert, Robert Burks, was that his name? I guess so. Yeah, yeah to I, me, that was like this, the cinematography. He was like, that was his best film right there. Well, uh, those films, uh, Rear Window, To Catch a Thief, Vertigo, North by Northwest. And I guess you could also include Dial M for Murder and uh, and uh, Hat Rope and um, Trouble with Harry. Yeah. Those were all those color films that he made in that <clears throat> middle part of his career. And they all have a, a similar look to them in terms of the cinematography. Uh, but uh, Vertigo is especially uh, interesting because he's using color to try to, to get across some ideas about the story. He's yeah. using it as part of the storytelling. Rear Window looks terrific. And yeah, Rear, yeah, that's like, I, I that's my favorite movie. <laughs> well, I think the advantage he has there is that all he needs to do is to convince you you're in that room. Yeah. Looking out over those other apartments. Uh, he's not He's not trying to use the uh, the cinematography or the color to help him tell the story because but, yeah. the story is pretty straightforward, right? There's, you could say in a way that Jimmy Stewart's character in that movie is sort of a, a surrogate for Hitchcock himself. Uh, he may see himself as being kind of handicapped in a way. He's not in a wheelchair, but he might just well be. Uh, he, right. Towards the end of his life, he was in a wheelchair because uh, he's so obese. Uh, and here he is uh, sitting there with his camera, looking through at all the other beautiful people. All yeah. <laughs> and so I guess uh, it, it asks all sorts of questions about uh, whether or not, what, what's the line that Grace Kelly uses? Uh, is, uh, is it okay to be a, a peeping Tom, even if you prove that your neighbor isn't a murderer? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess that's the raising those sort of questions about to what extent is it uh, ethical to be peeking into other people's lives? Yeah. 
even if you're having a positive effect. On right. It. Well, watching it today again, I was just thinking there's it's a complete metaphor for what's going on now with like social media. Everybody's mm-hmm. like looking in Terrell's life, and you've got That's these true, yeah. armchair sleuths who are <laughs> solving murders based on people's Facebook posts. I was right. like, <laughs> that's right. kind of weird. <laughs> well, that's an interesting observation. I don't think I've, I've yeah. heard anybody make that case, but that's true. Uh, it does. I, mean, I know voyeurism was a big, you know, that's always been a thing, but and that's what it's based on. But that's just that's just what I thought of today. Yeah. Well, the the other interesting thing about Rear Window is that. Um, Jimmy Stewart is hard for Grace Kelly to win over. Yeah. Now, I don't know if there are many warm-blooded American males that would be able to resist their charms, and yet he seems to be quite resistant to her. Uh, so I, I know that I, I seem to remember hearing that Hitchcock had confided to somebody, might have even said it in an interview, that he was essentially impotent, and that after he had, uh, uh, you know, he married Alma, Mm-hmm. Uh, who was somebody he had worked with. She was his continuity person or script girl. Yeah. Uh, uh, but really his consultant, uh, you know, she was his, you know, partner in, in most of the projects. Uh, after he married her and he, uh, they had, she had a, a baby uh, who actually grew up to appear in some of Hitchcock's films. Uh, after that, he wasn't interested in sex, he didn't right. have any sex. Now, I don't know why he would want that to be known, except possibly as a defense. He was, it was all part of building this character of being somebody who wasn't interested in that sort of thing. He was more interested in stuff like, uh, you know, uh, murder techniques and yeah. what uh, gruesome displays they have at Madame Tussauds. One of the interviews I saw, it starts actually with him as a as a figure in Madame Tussauds. <laughs> uh, so that he was he always seemed to be cultivating that thing as sort of a sexless person who could stand outside all this crazy shit that's going on with, yeah. that, that usually has sex as a motivating thing, and he could almost look at it in a sort of dist- with a sort of distance that a, a professor or or a doctor or a scientist. Right. Yeah. Uh, but. Uh, we, we are aware uh, of some unfortunate business that happened with Tippi Hendren uh, later in his career. Yeah. Uh, I, I watched know. the, uh, I watched, there was a, I want to say I watched a, a biography that was, uh, that starred Anthony Hopkins as right. Chuck, but I couldn't remember. <laughs> and I think it tackled some of that. I saw that. Because there were two of them that came out at the same time. There right. was the one with right. uh, Anthony Hopkins, there was another one. There was one called The Girl, which focuses mm. specifically on Tippi Hedren. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Tippi Hedren, I have no doubt that she was mistreated by him. Uh, but even she says she thinks he's a genius, and she's perfectly willing to celebrate the work they did together because she thinks it's uh, her unpleasant experience, uh, if I'm not misstating her views, right. was not, a, not sufficient cause to sort of cancel him and forget about the work he did. The work is too good. And also, you have to wonder what was going on in his mind. Yeah. Okay. Why would a person who claims to be impotent, why would he be chasing around after this woman? Uh, I have a feeling that what part, part of it might be is that uh, he might have been impotent or effectively impotent. And he just, he, his sexual desire was sort of channeled instead into controlling yeah. people, controlling particularly beautiful people. Uh, 
the idea to him, the great satisfaction of his life was to have uh, people like Cary Grant as his stand-in for him. Right, yeah. Right? Uh, or to uh, be able to have people like Tippi Hedren or, or Grace Kelly or uh, 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 what's her name from uh, Kim Novak. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, these unbelievably attractive women. And to basically be able, just like Jimmy Stewart does in Vertigo, to be able to dress them the way he wants and yeah. make them up the way he wants. And I, I don't like your hair that way. Do it this way. And with Tippi Hendren, she was actually under contract to him. Uh, so he felt, she's mine. It's like I have yeah. a, a little toy I can play with. Uh, so I can see that. I know from my experience working in films that the one thing that everybody volunteers to help you with is the casting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's because everybody sort of gets off on the idea of having all these young, attractive people presenting themselves to you for, for your approval. You know, it's, it, it gives you a sense of power, you know, but you shouldn't, you know, you can, you can smell the flowers, but you shouldn't, you shouldn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. more. Uh, that was his mistake. And I, I got to admit, I don't know what, what in the world got into him. He, particularly at that point in his life, he was yeah. not exactly in a position to be, you know, making love to uh, a beautiful young woman like Tippi Hedren. Tippi Hedren, yeah. <laughs> so I, I can't figure it out. But the fact that he makes characters like uh, Jimmy Stewart uh, seem so, uh, not impotent, but not vigorous men, macho men. Yeah. yeah I just took it, I took him as he's, he's just a cool character, right? He's just that, you know, the guy you want to be, you know what I'm saying? Oh, you don't want to be here right now? I don't need you. Get out of here. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I'm going to go back to spying on uh, Miss Torso, you know. But it is, uh, I mean, the only reason we don't see that character as sort of contemptible is because it's Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. <laughs> if you sat around in your bathrobe all day long, looking at the mirror, looking through your binoculars <laughs> at, the, at the neighbors, I mean, people would think you're a creep. But, yeah, oh, yeah. But it's Jimmy Stewart. So, But the fact that he's in a wheelchair means that he's kind of impotent in a way he's not able he's not able to defend himself when the yeah. time comes he has to send his girlfriend out to do his to do the dirty work yeah right? uh, not, not that she's reluctant she seems to be delighted to do it but he, uh, hitchcock seems to be making these characters who are who in other movies would be sort of iconic male figures he, he tries to make them a, a little more vulnerable. Yeah. Weaker. I, I think that was part of the character too, was, you know, they're mentioning before how uh, he wants to continue. Like once he gets out of the wheelchair, he wants to go back out in the field and right. do all this stuff. And she wants to stay there in, in the city. And then I think later on, once he realizes that she's really into this, you know, running across the, to the apartment, sneaking in, I think he kind of, that that's when he like started really to fall in love with her Well, and, and realize, well, okay, this is the girl that I want, you know, She's well, not boring like I thought she was. <laughs> well, she's certainly better looking than Thelma Ritter. So yeah. <laughs> if you end up now, you got two broken legs. Yeah. She's a better nurse than uh, right. Thelma. Uh, <laughs> and you can certainly tell from looking at the uh, at the scene where Thelma Ritter gives him a rub down. Mm -hmm. You can certainly see that, see that bodybuilding was not in vogue at that time. Right. The, yeah. Uh, but uh, but Jimmy Stewart was a, an amusing fellow. I'm always surprised by how. The character, the persona that he has, not just in Rear Window, but also in Vertigo, seems to be an older man than what he actually was. Yeah, yeah. 
I mean, he was about 55 or so, uh, pretty much the same age as Cary Grant was when he did uh, North by Northwest. And yet uh, that sort of strange, I guess we, I could be asking the same question about Jimmy Stewart that I asked about Alfred Hitchcock. Where did he get that character from? Yeah. You know, that sort of uh, stammering uh, character that isn't recognizable as far as I know it as any dialect that you would find in the United States. Uh, it, it doesn't, it's not like doing a Southern drawl or right. you know, uh, it's a unique to him, which was true of C Cary Grant as well. I mean, what the hell sort of dialect did Cary Grant have? Yeah. Right? Uh, but um, in Vertigo, especially, uh, he seems to be playing kind of an old man, which mm -hmm. is interesting. And the funny thing was that when Vertigo was a, a disappointment at the box office, Hitchcock uh, probably unfairly blamed Jimmy Stewart. He said he was too old for the part. It didn't bring in the ladies, you know, which, uh, you know, I mean, he hired the guy. He so he knew how old he was. So why should that be a surprise? I think the reason why Vertigo is uh, not successful at the box office is because it isn't as um, uh, lightly entertaining as Hitchcock's other Yeah, films. it's definitely, when we talked before about dropping scenes. <laughs> It definitely has a lot of those just people driving. Driving. And yes. I mean, it works. I mean, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed Vertigo and the, the scenes of him just following Kim Novak. I mean, they're just, it's in that music. That music's great. Great score. Vertigo. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great score. So that kind of helps it out. But yeah, I mean, there's not a lot of, I guess, you know, you know I don't want to say action, but you know, there's a lot of long drawn out scenes of right. him following her or just standing there looking at her and. Well, also in all the other movies, and I think Hitchcock always made a point of this, the character, the main character has some purpose. Yeah. Something he has to do urgently. Find something or get, you know, uh, prove that he's not the guilty party or whatever. Uh, and in Vertigo, it's hard for audiences to really understand what Jimmy Stewart was up yeah. to. Yeah, I think it was, little, it was probably a little bit too weird for that time. And I, for a long time, I sort of disliked the film because it seemed to me that the plot was just ridiculous. Uh, I mean, the whole idea of a, a wealthy man who wants to murder his wife concocting such a cockamamie scheme, yeah. you know, especially, I mean, if you're a murderer and you want to get, you want to set it up so somebody witnesses your wife's suicide. Suicide, yeah. Would you go to a police officer? <laughs> right. Not, not smart. Uh, and there's all sorts of things like that that just don't really make sense. Uh, uh, Hitchcock was always against what he called the plausibles, the people in the audience that were always talking about, oh, it's not, an, it's not plausible. Yeah. His idea is that plausibility is dull. But in this movie, he goes way beyond what Way he beyond, yeah. Yeah, because when you have uh, her play, almost playing the two different characters and then at some point, Jimmy's now Jimmy Stewart wants her to dress up like the other one. It's just like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, yeah. All, it's, all, I mean, on the one hand, you could say, well, yes, obsessed people behave that way. That's yeah. an accurate, uh, right? Thing. Yeah. But you, you uh, just as a regular person, you say, um, uh, first of all, has it come to pass that he bumps into this woman? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In those scenes where he's sort of wandering around, what is he looking for? The woman is dead. He knows that. Does he actually expect to be able to bump into her? Right. Yeah, to find her. Uh, and the idea that somebody who has participated in a crime like that, which she has, would still have a little, you know, memento mm -hmm. piece of jewelry from the, from the wife that was killed. That doesn't seem very likely to me. 
so there are all sorts of things that just make the plot seem yeah. you know, ridiculous. But I think that that was intentional. I think Hitchcock was saying, I want to make a story which is uh, dreamlike, where the rules don't apply. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's not logical. But I'm going to use what he called pure cinema techniques to catch you up in the story and to and to catch you up in the emotional aspects of the story yeah more, more so than the uh <clears throat> the, just the plot you know uh <clears throat> and he was successful in that i think oh yeah yeah the, the visually the movie is great I oh mean, yeah the locations yeah. <laughs> that he used that house that she lived in and then the uh of course you know filming at the bridge and there and the redwood forest and all that it's just yeah you know beautiful shots if he was going for uh, pure cinema uh, than that he achieved it in that film, I think. But the, uh, uh, the funny thing was that the great success that he had with Psycho is also attributable, I think, to uh, taking a story which is uh, probably not airtight, right. uh, but using the camera and cutting to convince the audience that it's happening, to sweep the audience up in the emotion of it just do cinematic techniques. Oh yeah, and that that is I, he. I think Psycho is more effective in capturing the audience's emotions, uh, getting them wrapped up in, in what's happening in the immediacy of it, than Vertigo. Vertigo, I think probably a lot of audience, a lot of folks in the audience would say, "Man, that does, this doesn't make any. This is too fucking weird." You know? Yeah, <laughs> and and there are missteps like. <clears throat> Well, it's another thing that he invented, actually, was that vertigo effect. I think yeah. we've talked about this Talk before. About before yeah. uh, so that's something that's been used in other films since. But uh, some of the things that aren't so effective are like that dream sequence that Jimmy Stewart has, where he sees what an animated, it almost looks like Walt Disney animated the corsage or whatever that the girl yeah. was. Uh, so the petals flying and the, and then then his face zooming towards his the hair head. blowing up and the red background with the right. it's a little too <laughs> it, it's the same problem i think and i didn't watch spellbound for this episode i, I i've seen it in the past i seem to remember that it has like a dream sequence to, that was done by salvador dali designed mm -hmm. by salvador dali and it was the same problem it's you don't buy that as a dream yeah we've we've spoken uh, uh during our Exorcist episode about the effectiveness of uh, Freakin's dream sequence in in The Exorcist with the yeah. mother coming out of the subway. That felt like a real dream. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know about you, but I don't dream with you know spirals. Spirals, of no. <laughs> and Jimmy Stewart's head like, reminded me of the uh, the commercial. I don't know if you had Carvel ice cream stores, and they used to have a commercial for a cookie puss, which was a cake. <laughs> and had a face on it and he used to have that hurtling towards you in the commercials so jimmy stewart always brings cookie puss to mind yeah <laughs> yeah i always uh, found that um i mean just watching all the ones i watched today his uh more you know like we talk about rear window like you know the one location mm -hmm. one location smaller sets more intimate films oh, to me those are his best that's his best work yeah it turns for some out reason i don't know why but well, I would even say I went. I've always liked Dial M for Murder, even though that obviously is not one of his most acclaimed films. Yeah, I like it too. But it's got a, such a great play. It's such a, a terrific story, and and Ray Milland is very entertaining. Grace Kelly is great in it, mm -hmm. and uh, 
uh, John Williams, the, the British actor, not the not composer. the composer. <laughs> uh, he's quite entertaining. When I was watching it this time, I thought uh, a lot of what we see in movies like Rope and Dial on for Murder must have been elements uh, that uh, Levinson and Link had in mind when they devised Columbo. Yeah. Because the same thing, we see the murder, right? We see the murderer preparing the murder. Mm -hmm. And then we see the murder. In the case of Dial M for Murder, of course, the murder doesn't come off. Oh, actually, somebody does end up. That's right, it does, yeah. <laughs> but then there's the in, in, inspector that comes in, and it's basically a match. In the case of Rope, the inspector is Jimmy Stewart. The, yeah. I guess he's supposed to be one of their professor from, from their college days. But it's the same sort of thing with sort of an eccentric figure who comes in and is sort of tripping people up on their lives. Yeah. It's very much like a Columbo uh, template there. Yeah. But with Down for Murder, you had, I mean, it was like, you know, it's that one room basically through the whole, you know, yeah. through the whole thing. And it's all, you know, these tight shots of everybody. But whenever the husband is talking to the, to the guy he's going to have kill his wife, they do that. Where the camera's almost up at an Above, angle, yeah. looking down at it, it's almost like you're looking at the floor plan of like, well, you know, what should be laid out. And I was like, right. that's, that's a pretty interesting way to do that. Right. Yeah, yeah. That he he always managed to work in some clever shots, even in the most, you know, uh, bland material. But I don't think that play is bland at all. I think that's a perfect example of that type of mystery thriller. You know, uh, they don't make them like that anymore. When uh, when Anthony Schaffer, who would later do the screenplay for Frenzy, uh, when he wrote Sleuth, which was a tremendous success on right. stage and in the movies, uh, he, he probably was thinking of uh, some of the stuff that he saw in, uh, in Hitchcock's movies, you know, that, that, that he probably had. I think Hitchcock had a tremendous influence on almost everybody who worked in that field. But that type of story, the Dial in for Murder play, uh, that used to be a fairly common thing. They used to be plays like that on Broadway or on the London stage uh, all the time. You know, every season there was one or two really good thrillers. Yeah. We haven't had that for decades, right? Probably not since Death Trap, which is the 70s or the early 80s, uh, which was written by uh, Rosemary's Baby's guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm sure Ivor Levin, I don't know this for a fact, but I'm going to guess that Ivor Levin was probably a big Hitchcock fan. Probably, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, Dial M for Murder always entertains me, and I think it's a it's not a, a masterpiece of cinema, but it's a very solid piece of entertainment, and it it makes a good uh, companion piece with Rope because they do have those similarities, and with Rear Window as well. Yeah, but it is funny that so many of his films do take for a guy that was all about cinema, you know, the importance of uh, composition and cutting and 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 camera movement. So some of his best movies are on a very small scale. Small scale, yeah. yeah. Now another thing too was like a Rear Window. The fact that that was a set, <laughs> that that whole thing was built. Yeah. And the way they built it was like the uh, all the apartments were they were built them down in like a hole inside right. the studio, and then so that way his apartments up here and they can look down on it. And the fact that they went to the detail and put like the little alley in the back with the store right. front, that right. little store right. front. There, I'm like, that's just great. Yeah, that's, that's like, right. you know, you're not going to do that anymore. Right. <laughs> well, the funny thing is, it probably wouldn't be as effective if they actually did it in a, in a real place. location. Yeah. <laughs> the, the ability to control all those elements all at once and and uh, uh, ha have a sort of uniform stylization 
there's no jarring elements. Everything feels like it belongs in that world. Yeah. You know. So yeah, yeah. Rear Window probably comes about as close to a perfect movie as far as I'm concerned. Because your, I mean, your TV or your theater screen is there were is there were a window. You're basically just looking at what he's looking. At. Like I said, I think it's great. That's one of my like. I think it's one of his best ones. He found a way to actually put the audience in the place of the yeah. character all through the movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh, I don't know if uh, I know Raymond Burr did a lot of movies over the years mm -hmm. before before he did Perry Mason, but he certainly makes a very. Impressive yeah, I was one. I was wondering that if he was. If he was like big at the time, and oh. had no, you know what I'm saying, and or if that was like his first big role, I didn't know if it was one of those like, oh, he can't be the killer, it's Raymond Burr, you know what I'm saying, yeah. and then, oh, wait, he is, yeah, you know, I didn't know if that was like a big twist back then, or well, uh, Hitchcock mentioned in regard to one of his films that the problem he had sometimes was that the big actors, the best actors, wouldn't consider uh, uh characters. Uh, you know, who appear after the titles. In other words, yeah. they didn't want to play the, the secondary roles. They were right, yeah. So, but the the truth is that those smaller roles sometimes are harder to play and require oh, yeah. greater skill than the lead characters, right? Uh, and he's quite a good in that, even though we, for most of the movie, we only see him in a great distance. Oh, yeah. Uh, and of course, we have our Tingler friend, Mrs. Mrs. <laughs> yeah. Mrs. Lonely Hearts. Lonely Hearts, yeah. The actress who plays Miss. Miss Lonely Hearts played the deaf mute in The Tingler, the William Castle movie that we talked about a few episodes ago. So uh, that's that's kind of amusing. But uh, I have to admit that one scene in Rear Window uh, when the woman discovers that her dog has been uh, killed, killed yeah. shouting to the whole neighborhood, that always brings a lump to my throat. <laughs> <laughs> I, say, I didn't think you'd kill a little dog. <laughs> Kind of hard not to respond emotionally to that. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so yeah, yeah, it's a very entertaining movie. Very entertaining. There was uh, a, there was there was like a little joke that I just saw today and didn't realize it. <clears throat> and that's like you have like the newlywed couple that come in and he sees mm -hmm. them come in. The landlord brings them in and of course he carries her across the. And there was like a couple, uh, maybe a couple scenes later. It's like maybe a day or two later in the movie. The the groom opens the window. It's like leans out looking and you hear her say something. And he kind of like sighs, yeah. just like wearing him out with sex the whole time. Right, right, right. <laughs> and then they're the, they're the only ones really at the end of the film that don't have a happy end. <laughs> yeah. After the sex is over, <laughs> it's uh, not as much fun. And Mrs., what, what do they call him, Miss Body? Uh, Miss uh, Torso. Miss Torso. Uh, her, her, the boyfriend that she's waiting for is some little guy that looks like a little Chanel. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, there's a lot, a lot of little funny, fun things like that. Uh, the woman who is doing the abstract art, what does she say? It's the, the it's a, it's like a body with a hole in the center. Yeah. And she says it's a hunger. Is that what she? I called? think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she's an interesting figure, but uh, yeah, they're all kind of fun. It's 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 a delightful movie. The audience that I saw it with, just you know, it's one of those movies that they would. You, you walk out, you feel like you're, you've been lifted off the ground, you know? It's, yeah, I guess the only thing that in age well is they're, they're worried about the woman being murdered, <clears throat> but they're not too worried about the uh, lady being date raped. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, I would have let that go. Well. We don't uh, want to be involved in that. <laughs> they, I think that that moment when uh, Thelma Ritter realizes that she's getting ready to kill herself, and it's like they're it's almost like they're watching two TV shows at once. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God, she's gonna kill herself. Get on the phone, call the cops. And at the same time, uh, 
uh, Raymond Burr has uh, is coming uh, descending on uh, Grace Kelly. Yeah. So that that is you know, everything just comes together at once. It's <laughs> per perfectly timed, beautifully done. But uh, yeah, so that's a favorite, no question about it. Uh, Strangers on a Train is another one that I watched recently. Uh, that's a favorite of mine as well. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of these stories that Hitchcock did uh, that involve uh, people wrongly accused, uh, uh, they could be very tedious if they weren't at the problem. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's true also of the 39 Steps, which may have been one of the first where he did that, where the basic premise is almost the same as North by Northwest, where the guy... Uh, knows something about spy activity and they're trying to kill him or they're killing people around him and he's always being accused for you know the dead bodies that are left behind and in uh, 39 steps it starts with that with the woman who's a uh, trying to get some uh, important information to uh, her boss right and she gets stabbed there's a little bit of a of an inconsistency there uh, she's in his apartment apartment yeah and they know that there are two people she knows that there's two people waiting outside to kill her uh, but they don't come in they don't make any attempt to come in and then uh robert donat the hero goes to bed and when he wakes up she comes staggering into the room with a knife in her back now why if they were in the apartment to kill her why wouldn't they kill, him, kill as well? him yeah that doesn't, that doesn't strike because they don't he doesn't linger on any of these things long enough yeah. to matter but that was a little that was a little lapses or inconsistencies yeah that was the watching that this time was the first time i'd ever seen it i'd never seen it before and i watched it and i thought it was great yeah, it was very it was like a really great like simple story and you'd already mentioned the robert what did you say doing that robert donut yeah great great actor i don't know why you know i don't know why i've never seen him anything else before he was like superb in this movie well, he had quite a career. Uh, yeah. I don't know if he had, did many more movies like this one, but he was ideal for this type of type of role. He sort of set the uh, set the uh, uh, the model or the template for all the similar heroes. Yeah, the young, attractive, funny leading man, right? right. Always dealing with everything with a quip. Similar yeah. character in The Lady Vanishes, and of course, ultimately, Cary Grant in North by Northwest. Very similar. Matter of fact, the a lot of scenes in North by Northwest are very similar to 39 Steps. The scene uh, in 39 Steps where he goes to the guy's place thinking that that's the guy he is, should be reporting to. Yeah. And he's the guy with the missing pinky figure, the yeah. guy who should be staying away from. <laughs> and the guy is having some sort of social event there and his wife is there or his mother, I forget what, which, which it is. And he sort of... Uh, has the same sort of interaction with him in that scene that Cary Grant has with James Mason right. North by Northwest. Uh, James Mason, incidentally, once again, <laughs> proving his great value. I, I don't know how many lines he has in the movie, but every mo every line is delivered yeah. to, to perfection. You know. Yeah. Is. Now, yeah, with Aaron on steps, I thought it was uh, like the way he you know he shows up at this farmhouse. <laughs> Oh, oh, yes. just, it feels like this feels like that joke you know it was actually you, you could stay at my house but don't sleep with my daughter and the the guy's wife is just throwing herself all over the, all over this guy like he's like the most sexiest thing ever i was like that's like great that's i never would expect to see something that in one of these movies uh, i think hitchcock thought of it as like episodes yeah and he did actually base that episode on that joke i, I, I don't know there's a lot of jokes yeah 
the, the farmer's wife or the farmer's yeah. daughter. But he did, you know, the, the, the punchline of the joke has changed slightly, but it's basically the same premise. Uh, and Hitchcock actually recounted that joke in his Truffaut interview. Yeah. So, yeah, he uh, he, he did that. He, I, yeah. I, you, you could say in a way that all the stories that he's telling in his films, including something like Psycho, are kind of like jokes. They're structured yeah. like jokes. There's the setup and there's a lot of sort of shaggy dog stuff in the middle and then there's the punchline and the longer he strings it out the more enjoyable he makes it and the more suspense he creates the more entertaining the punchline is yeah uh he said psycho was was a comedy uh i don't know if he meant that literally right but but it (laughs) it does have a lot of humor in it a sort of dark humor and that's true of all of his films i mean even in something like frenzy which I think actually is probably the most uh, mean-spirited of his films, mm-hmm. pro- probably because of the script that was written by Anthony Schaffer, because Anthony Schaffer was kind of a, kind of a crappy guy. Yeah. <laughs> what I read, but there's a lot of humor in that that probably wouldn't fly nowadays, like yeah. joking, joking about uh, rape and stuff like that. Yeah. Now going back to Thirty Nine Steps, I don't know if it, I don't know if this bothered me or if I thought if I thought it was really good. Whenever he bumps into the woman on the train, and she's there for like two minutes. And then she comes back like 20 right. minutes later and like one of the main characters and finishes right. up the film. I was like, I wasn't really, I wasn't expecting it. I, I just kept thinking it doesn't make sense, but I still enjoyed it. Like, cause she well, was yeah. great too. That actress was great. And they were great. They were great together. The whole the scene where they were like handcuffed together or tied, tied up together. The whole, right. just great stuff. But I just I couldn't figure out why that character all of a sudden came back. Well, that's another element that shows up in North by Northwest, right? Mm-hmm ending up on the train and snuggling up to some blonde and saying, please protect me. I'm innocent. Yeah. <laughs> Don't get me away to the cops. I think the twist that he was working on with that was that uh, she might've been an actress that the audience knew. Yeah. And when he comes into her car and says, they're after me, but I'm innocent, please protect me. And he gives her a big kiss to fool them. Uh, the audience is going to think all oh, the, that kiss is going to be so great. She's yeah. going to, throw in with him and protect him. And she doesn't. She, she mainly, doesn't. mainly hey, turns him in. Yeah. This is the guy you're looking for. <laughs> uh, so I guess the double twist is that she was heading in the same direction. Same, she yeah. same story, you know, later part of the story. So that's kind of fun. But the also the idea is, uh, just like with the Bond films, they're constantly reminding you that you shouldn't be taking this too seriously. Yeah. Because they're not, you know. Uh, and I guess that's what makes it more entertaining than tedious because yeah. it could be tedious i mean these type of stories could be kind of a drag to watch if if they were actually uh, obsessing for instance about the MacGuffin. right That's, yeah I, think- I guess that was just you know she was just gone and then later on like oh she shows up and you're like well wait a minute that was the one like how'd she end up here <laughs> you know what i'm saying like if she would have been tied into the story a little bit more i would have believed it but i mean i still find oh, it yeah. i feel so entertaining well, coincidences like that are acceptable as long as they aren't pivotal to the story. In, in other words, uh, she, uh, she do- doesn't provide him with an instant solution or resolution yeah. uh, to his problem. Matter of fact, she isn't really, she doesn't provide him with solution to anything. She's no, just, no. His, she accompanies him. Her moment of, uh, the, the, the important moment for her character is when she goes from being a non-believer to a believer. Right. And yeah. she overhears that conversation. Uh, those are the little things that really, that in the scripts that I write, I'm always looking for that sort of thing where 
we feel like we understand what direction things are going in and then something happens that spins the thing in a different yeah. direction. Uh, putting the, the story on the track that the audience wants it to be on without having to do too much contrived shit, you know, that, yeah. that makes, you, makes the audience feel like you're cheating. Uh, we want I, her to believe him. Yeah, I do feel like if they were to re, redo that type of story nowadays, it would end up she would have been involved the entire time we just didn't know it you know what i'm saying <laughs> that's how that's how they would have done it uh, possibly so <clears throat> i know they did a remake i think actually it was, was it hammer films that did one of their last films i think was it was either La the lady vanishes or the 39 steps they remade it unwise to do well, i know the lady vanishes was remade because i found like i think i found two other versions when i was looking oh, for really? two. Oh, the God. one that i was going to watch well uh, 79 and i think i can't remember the other one well the if it was 79, I guess, Hammer, yeah, probably that would, would have been the Hammer one. I think that was the last, uh, the last uh, gasp of Hammer films. They tried doing a, a Hitchcock remake and it didn't work. Robert Powell, I think, was the star. Uh, he's the guy that played Jesus and Jesus, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, right? if I'm not mistaken. But anyway, uh, uh, it, Lady Vanishes, very entertaining. Uh, and they're all sort of of a, uh, of a piece, right? 39 Steps and The Man Who Knew Too Much and The Lady Vanishes, all you can immediately recognize that they're all from the same same hand. Oh, yeah. Uh, and uh, they, in a way, they sort of set uh, the, the style for that type of movie, uh, even to this day, I suppose. Uh, we're still seeing examples of that type of story. Yeah, The Lady Vanishes, that was another one I'd never seen before watched it around on this time and loved it yeah it's it was great and immediately fell in love with margaret lockwood <laughs> <laughs> yeah she's very great. charming yeah. and then like the when, when they're in the hotel like her and those other two women i was like well if it's if it's just them three the whole the whole movie i'm fine <laughs> yeah it's a lot of fun um, she was like a really good i don't think a lot of people i don't think we mentioned uh how great like leading actresses were back in those days because they're always leading men but yeah. to me i thought she was a great you know, leading leading actress well another an, another one i would mention is uh, i think her name is Teresa wright in shadow of a doubt mm -hmm. the one that plays the, the niece uh she is gives a terrific performance uh and i have to admit that's the type of film that i would normally resist because the premise of it sounds like it's going to be very contrived and yeah and, but it was very well done and they were joseph cotton and her were terrific in it and, you know the acting is just brilliant and the script is so smart you know it was written by uh thornton wilder the playwright the guy that wrote our town apparently uh hitchcock expressed an interest in working with him and apparently thornton wilder was a uh, a fan so he came and he worked with hitchcock to make at least the first draft of the script and you can tell because this, the dialogue in that is much smarter than in most other films from that time. It's, and it's delivered at such a rapid pace. Uh, 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 Joseph Cotton worked with uh, Orson Welles in uh, the Mercury Theater, and he did Citizen Kane and the Magnificent Ambersons. And uh, Orson Welles uh, used sort of overlapping dialogue sometimes as well to give a more naturalistic feel to the to the dialogue and there's a little bit of that in shadow of a doubt there's a lot of scenes where everybody's talking at once i also like the fact that the children are not obnoxious you know, right yeah they're precocious or at least one of them the little girl is precocious but they're not you know you don't feel like you want to 
become a mad strangler yourself. You yeah. <laughs> but uh, the only thing I would say about Shadow of a Doubt that might have limited its success, I assume it was a successful film, but it prevented it from becoming like a success on the level of uh, Psycho, is that uh, the ending is a little too abrupt, it seems to me. Yeah. Maybe he felt that there's just, he played it out long enough and there wasn't much more that could be done with that premise. But uh, it seemed to me that it just was the end sort of comes upon you all of a sudden and, and it's over. But other than that, I think that's a wonderful film. And uh, what else? Well, what real other? quick, uh, The Lady Vanishes, uh, this, see, 1938. And then there was one in 79 starring Angela Lansbury and Sybil Shepherd. Oh. And then there was another one in 2013 with nobody that I recognize. <laughs> so they remade it, remade it twice. Well, I would recommend that they not. I would recommend. Yeah, I don't think I'm even gonna watch the other ones because I love this one so much. Yeah. The I mean, opening, it's... like I thought, oh, look at this cool map painting, and then I realized, wait, it's a, it's a model. Yeah, that train station. It was a model. It had a little car drive by. I was like, that's yeah. really cool. How they done that. Well, all the things that he did back in those movies, and he continued to do all the way up until the, the 60s, practically, with uh, glass paintings and miniatures mm -hmm. and things like that. All of those things look great in those movies because they were shooting movies. Uh, the whole approach was a sort of stylized uh, approach. Everything looked artificial. So yeah. miniatures fit in, matte paintings uh, fit in rear projection, which he used all the time, all of that fit in. Yeah, that rear projection in his films just has a charm that if it was in, you see it in the other movie, you're like, uh, well, he uses bad. It you, he, he, uses, he used it and you're like, that's awesome. <laughs> and it actually becomes part of his part of the, yeah. technique, a part of his style. When he did Family Plot, that was in the early 70s. Now it's really past the time when he should have been doing like driving scenes with, he didn't use rear projection, but he used like blue, blue screen. Yeah. Uh, and it was really past that point. But in a way, it sort of makes the film feel more like a Hitchcock film, mm -hmm. you know, because that's it, recognizable as soon as you see it. You say, oh, yeah, I'm yeah. watching a Hitchcock movie. I'm not sure how they've done it, but in The Lady Vanishes, when the guy climbs out of the train to go into the next window and the other train passes, I thought Man, that had to have been rear projection but i don't think it was yeah. i think he was just hanging out of an actual well, train i don't know he might have been hanging out outside of something but <laughs> yeah almost almost certainly uh those effects were done using rear projection because they didn't really i mean they had the shuffton process which was a way of putting compositing different images together yeah. uh, and i think he did use that on, in a couple of instances uh well actually the shuffton process is a process using mirrors uh, the um, sodium backing process, mm -hmm. I think, is, is the one where you put, put people in front of a yellow screen, and I guess on, blue, on black and white film, that uh, allows you to superimpose things uh, or map yeah. things behind them. But I have a feeling probably most of the time when you see stuff like that, it's probably rear projection. He was so good at it, you know, he got, he got it down so, so well that it, sometimes it looks extraordinarily effective sometimes i have to say it doesn't look effective at all to catch a thief which has never been uh is it to catch a thief yes to catch a thief well, yes uh, that's the one with carrie grant and yeah his. yeah <clears throat> he has a scene there where they're driving along and they did a lot of location footage uh, location shooting in in france but they have uh, all the car stuff is all done with them sitting in you know prop cars with yeah rear projected 
And in this one, in this one scene, they tried to make it a little, uh, a little more fancy by having her steering and the car would actually move. Uh, doesn't work at all. All right. Yeah. First of all, the camera's at the wrong angle. They, <laughs> uh, the camera is shooting. It almost looks like it's shooting down on them, and the the horizon is straight, you know, directly behind them. So it doesn't look right at all. There's a lot. There's a couple of technical imperfections in To Catch a Thief. The guy, uh, To Catch a Thief, first of all, you could sort of see where the Bond films got the idea of Bond going to like uh, 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 the head of the Turkish secret police mm-hmm. uh, in From Russia With Love. Uh, and uh, that guy becomes like his friend and companion. Uh, and he's a sort of an eccentric figure. And you see the same character show up in On a Majesty's Secret Service. Uh, he's the head of a of a uh, organized crime ring and 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 he's working with this uh, British intelligence yeah, he uh, his daughter Diana Rigg actually marries Bond in that movie and then you see it later in For, For Your Eyes Only same kind of character and in this you see it with uh, Cary Grant first going to that guy who's running that restaurant I don't know if you caught to Catch a Thief. And, and I started watching. That was that was one of the last ones I tried to watch today and just ran out of time, but I did see some of the opening. Well, uh, Cary Grant is accused, uh, was thought to be the cat burglar. Cat burglar, yeah. So he escapes the police and he shows up at a, a restaurant that's being run by what I assume is a, a friend of his who used to be part of the French Resistance because he was in the French Resistance. Uh, and uh, the guy is also, I guess, uh, some sort of uh, maybe some sort of underworld figure or organized crime figure. Anyway, uh, the guy who did the part was completely looped, uh, and it was very so obvious. I wonder why they allowed that. Uh, you know, especially with Hitchcock's reputation of being the great technician. Yeah, to have an actor who was clearly uh, who had, whose part had clearly been revoiced by another actor, I couldn't figure that out. It's very obvious. Uh, to Catch a Thief looks to me like a project that Hitchcock did uh, as almost like a vacation. Yeah. Uh, opportunity to go travel to, the, <laughs> to France. France and hang out. Hang out with beautiful <clears throat> people. And, uh, you know, uh, but it's, it's loaded with dialogue. And this is another thing I guess we could talk about is uh, uh, Hitchcock started in silent films. And for the silent filmmakers, uh, the great uh, accomplishment was to tell the story without using too much dialogue right because Mm. back then the only way you could do dialogue would be to have it printed and obviously people don't want to go to a movie and see you know half the picture you know text reading it yeah so it became a point of pride if you could make a movie that had a minimal amount of those type of titles you had learned how to tell a story cinematically and this is something that we hear nowadays all the time as well, that you should show, don't tell. Show, don't tell. Right? But uh, coming from that background, it gave him a, a prejudice against uh, the, the importance of sound. Once you do have sound, and once you've gone through that period, which they had to go through where, where sound recording made it, uh, sort of inhibited the shooting of the movies because the cameras bulky and there was you know, all yeah. sorts of problems with recording. And uh, for a time there in the early so- uh, so- uh, sound era, 
the filmmaking techniques sort of reverted to the most primitive because they had no choice. It was the only way to shoot sound, sound films. But very quickly, they learned how to make very sophisticated films with a lot of different angles and a lot of different special effects uh, that were also sound movies. And as proof of that, 1933, which is just a few years after the first of all sound movies in like 27, 28, somewhere in there. By 1933, they were doing things like King Kong, yeah. which has just this amazing range of different types of photographic techniques and also sound effects. Uh, I mean, there's sound effects in King Kong that nobody ever heard before because they were just developing those te techniques at the time. The, the special effects techniques that they developed and the equipment that they developed to carry those effects off were still being used in the 60s when they did Star Trek on the same lot where they did yeah. uh, King Kong. So there wasn't any, uh, there was a period when uh, it was important not to forget uh, how to tell a story visually just because you had sound. And Hitchcock was an important bridge, right, from the sound there to the sound there. He brought all those imaginative visual techniques into the sound era. But it's also true that as uh, the process of making sound movies became easier, and as uh, you became more flexible as a filmmaker, shooting movies and sound, this obsession about uh, not doing things with dialogue by limiting the dialogue, this isn't, you know, this, this, this sense of uh, this sort of prejudice against films that are all talk. Yeah. That doesn't make any sense anymore. I mean, Rear Window is could be done as a radio show. Oh yeah, one of the greatest. I mean, one of my favorite scenes that at, is at the beginning when it's just panning over and you see his leg in a cast, right. and camera pans up and you see his camera and it's all destroyed. And you're like, okay, and it goes to a picture of <clears throat> of a car wreck. You're like, okay, so he broke his leg filming a car wreck, and then you know, he's a reporter. We're getting all this information just by looking at. Right. And there's a picture of, you know, Grace Kelly. So like, okay, that's obviously his girlfriend. And it just keeps going. And you're right there. You got, you just learned everything about all the neighbors and your main character without saying a word. And that's, that's exactly the sort of thing that you would have done in a silent movie. Yeah. The audience would understand just by looking at all those things. And I'm glad he did it that way in real window, but all the rest of the movie is all talk. Right? Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, and uh, with to catch a thief, it's particularly uh, uh, damaging, I would say, because a lot of the talk isn't particularly interesting, in my opinion. You know, there's a, some dialogue there that probably could have been cut and would have been cut if it had been any uh, one of the other Hitchcock movies. Yeah. In this case, in the case of To Catch a Thief, he seems to be sort of taking it easy and saying, "Well, we'll just, you know, we'll just enjoy ourselves." Yeah, I just, I just always hate, and we've talked about it before. I hate films that have too much <clears throat> exposition characters got to tell the other character exactly what's going on and they do it like too much it's like right. a new character comes in okay we've got to catch this guy up with what's going on and they're like ah oh, we don't need all that yeah no, we, I know, agree. we know it can be done without all that you know what i'm saying we've seen movies that do it perfectly redundant dialogue is certainly a, a mistake but uh, if your dialogue is as sparkling as the dialogue <laughs> in your window <laughs> yeah then my feeling is the more the merrier you know? oh yeah there's, there's nothing, no matter how great the silent movie may be, and there were a lot of great silent movies, there's nothing that can beat hearing a terrific actor 
like Thelma Ritter yeah. delivering some <clears throat> of that dialogue. There's just, there's no, no comparison, right? Uh, silent movies are, are, are limited to a certain extent by the fact that they have to simplify everything so that everybody in the audience will understand what's going on using just pictures. Yeah. Once you get into the sound era, you can have a much more sophisticated uh, story and, and much more sophisticated characters. And, and all of that can just be through the inflections in their voice or the things that they're saying, the suggestions, uh, the, the hints that they're, uh, that they're making in, in, their, in their dialogue. There, there's greater meaning to the film because you have the dialogue that can have all sorts of shades of meaning that you can't convey in a visual image. Uh, that I think is, uh, it, it sort of makes me wonder why he insisted all through his career right up to the end that he was only interested in pure cinema. Uh, he clearly wasn't. He clearly was uh, uh, very interested in crafting these really delightful scripts that were filled with, with witty dialogue. I mean, obviously the ideal situation is to be somewhere in between where you take care of the visuals, but you also have the witty dialogue. Yeah. Yeah. Another great scene comes mine is in Psycho whenever uh, Marion is driving from, you know, she's supposed to go to the bank, but she's already decided that she's skipping town. And when she's driving through town and it's just, you know, just her thinking about right. everything that everybody say, or what, what's everybody thinking? What's everybody saying? Are they looking right. for me? That's what, that's the most tense. Like I get so, anxious watching that scene just watching it i'm like it's, it's so effective it's like one of the great yeah. then when the cop pulls her over you're just like oh gosh she's caught <laughs> you know but that that's another example uh, that's another example of sort of the, the shaggy dog story aspect yeah. of it. it's like he's putting the audience to the ringer on all these things about her worrying about is she going to get caught and you know the all the business that they at the used car lot oh know, yeah gotta give, give her, her shit because she wants to buy a car yeah we need your paying cash come on nobody does that <laughs> then you get to a point in the story where suddenly all of that doesn't mean anything anymore you know yeah uh, and, I, I, and i think what happens is by the time she gets to the motel you think okay she's fine right she, she's good now she's gonna make it to the end then no she gets hacked up in the <laughs> in the shower yeah. in the next five minutes I, I, they did a, a, a movie about the Francois Truffaut Hitchcock a documentary about mm -hmm. that, the making of that book. And they have a whole bunch of filmmakers talking about it. I think it was Peter Bogdanovich who says uh, that when the audience, uh, he was in the audience when Psycho premiered, and the, the audience didn't just scream. It was a sustained scream <laughs> yeah. all through the shower scene. Because <laughs> audience has never seen anything like that. Not just that they hadn't seen the violence. They yeah. had never seen the leading lady, lady. murdered. Yeah. You know, what is it, 20 minutes, 30 minutes into the film? Something like that, yeah. Probably um, less than that, probably 15. Minus the credits, you know. So that was a real shocking thing to do, and it must have delighted him. You know, because that, that was the that's the essence of a good joke is that the punchline is unexpected, the surprise. Yeah. And that's the same thing here, right? He led you all on this route that you think you know what's go where you're going, and then boom, you know, he hits you with the surprise. So he must have been having a good laugh. At that I, wonder, I wonder how he uh talked Janet Lee into doing that small role. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I, she seen, oh, in all the interviews I have ever seen with her, she always seemed like a very intelligent person. And I guess she just must have realized that this was, well, first of all, he had, great. Yeah. he had quite a reputation. Oh, course, yeah. So, uh, but to be a part of, uh, just to have a small part in a movie that's going to become a sensation like that, you know, must have been uh, uh, too good to resist. But, uh, and the guy who played uh, her boyfriend in that, John Gavin, mm -hmm. I think we might have talked about this. He was actually hired to play James Bond for Diamonds Are Forever. He was actually signed. And when, she, because they didn't, they weren't going to be using George Lazenby again. Uh, so they were picking their future James Bonds from Hitchcock movies. Yeah. If there's any further need to. <laughs> oh, also, another, uh, he didn't end up playing the part, obviously. Sean, right. They, yeah. They decided eventually to pay Sean Connery what he wanted and they brought him back. But uh, Peter Laurie, who is the villain in uh, Man Who Knew Too Much, he would play La Schriff, if that's the name of the villain, in the first version of Casino Royale, which was right, done yeah. for American television in the 50s. So once again, a uh, uh, connection between the Hitchcock world and the Bond world. I don't know what, what that means, but yeah. <laughs> interesting. Peter Laurie is like James Mason. He's the sort of actor that's yeah. always fun to watch, no matter what oh, film yeah. he's in. He's a delight. So what else can we cover? The birds? Did we talk about the birds? We didn't talk the birds, but uh, do you think that the birds is as good as everybody thinks, says that it is or thinks it is? Because every time I watch it, I'm thinking this is going to be great. And then I'm watching it and I'm like, it's really not that good. I mean, what, what disappoints you? The ending? Um, Not so much the ending. I guess it's just whenever I watch it, it's it doesn't seem as tense or as scary as I think that it as i remembered it or as i'm hoping it's going to be going into it yeah well i mean i always enjoy the film there's no scenes of like real good i guess the only scene of tension and i don't even call it tension really is whenever tippy hedron's locked in the i guess the attic or one of the oh, upper yeah. rooms and all the birds get in and attack her but the rest of the movie to me is just i don't know it's just kind of falls flat well they have that one famous scene with her <clears throat> sitting on the bench outside the school waiting mm -hmm. for and the slow build up of all the birds flying over and eventually yeah. she looks around and there's they're all masked. They're all sitting on the monkey well, bars. I like the scenes in the diner. I think they play well. Yeah. Uh, uh the uh problem with that film is the scenes uh, trapped in the house are probably my favorites when they're they gotta block up the fireplace and all that. <clears throat> That's right. but everything else outside for some reason, just falls flat. I don't know if that's because it's, I don't know if it'd be more effective at nighttime or. Well, I think it'd be more effective if they weren't birds. <laughs> yeah. Well, the fact that they were trying to do something like that at that time was quite a, a stunt. Matter yeah. of fact, they might have used sodium backing uh, for the birds. Uh, the sodium backing process might have been used to superimpose the birds over. Yeah. It's mostly convincing, but I think the problem, this is something I think I've said. <laughs> Uh, in uh, other episodes when we were talking about uh, Hitchcock is that it's too artificial. Yeah. It, it would have been much more powerful if it had been done as a sort of new wave movie, you know, shot in real places instead of being shot on sets. I don't know how you would do the business with the superimposing the birds. Maybe you need to have a movie that is all artificial in order to work that sort of element in and have it, yeah. have it work at all. But uh, I still have largely. I always enjoy watching it. Yeah, I do too. But I just, for some reason, I don't think it's. I don't think it's. It's not. I wouldn't put it on my top ten Hitchcock list. Yeah, and it was an unusual film for Hitchcock. Yeah. I mean, he didn't do too many. He didn't do any other, any other film that involves any sort of supernatural stuff. 
uh, I don't know if we consider the bird thing supernatural or science fiction. Science or... fiction. I would say science fiction. Maybe I don't know. I don't because he never. It didn't seem like it had any kind of. Uh, I mean, you know, I know that uh, <laughs> global warming and all that. You know, wasn't big back. So I don't think it had any kind of. And it definitely didn't. It definitely wasn't saying anything about you know radiation or nuclear power. So no. well, it wasn't trying to say anything about you know society or anything it was just a killer birds movie <laughs> well, I, I think that's why i like the, di the diner scene is the scene where you really get that feeling of tension when everybody's sort of discussing it almost reminds i i assume that george romero saw the birds before he yeah. died of the living dead but that sort of uh, people in a confined space something bad is happening outside and they're debating what's going on and why it's going on and so to hear those folks coming to terms with this uh, yeah. bizarre idea the birds are attacking that's fun mm -hmm. you know and when the when the, they're talking about you know why would why would the birds be attacking or is it a, and then the waitress comes out and says two five chicken you know? <laughs> yeah <laughs> so those are those are fun touches you know yeah it, it reminds me of when there's another movie that i enjoy called squirm <laughs> oh yeah it's yeah. about cutter earthworms i'm like it's basically the same movie you know yeah. what I'm saying? It's well, just birds that definitely, and worms. Yeah, you know. that definitely was inspired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, almost, uh, the, almost unending series of uh, nature attacks movies uh, yeah. in, throughout the 70s. It seemed like there was a delayed reaction, possibly because nobody else could figure out how to do that type of movie, you know. Right, yeah. It, it was apparently quite, quite a challenge for Hitchcock. But when they got into the 70s, uh, suddenly we started to see a lot of those type of movies. Oh, yeah, Day of the Animal, Grizzly. I'm sure there were a bunch more I'm not thinking of. <laughs> well, my, my favorites are the uh, the cheesy Bird Eye Gordon movies. Food, <laughs> yeah. Food of the Gods. Have you ever oh, seen? yeah. And Empire of the Ass. Night of the Lupus. Night of Lupus. There's another one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We can't blame Bird Eye Gordon for that one. Right, that, yeah. That was another one. Gigantic uh, rabbit, so you can't go wrong there. And... Uh, uh, I'm sure there's a whole bunch that we know. Frogs is another Frogs, one. Frogs, yeah. I still remember seeing that. I remember owning that on Betamax. <laughs> I, I saw <laughs> that frogs. cover. That was like the greatest cover. The oh, big yeah. frog with the hand. Yeah. And of course, it was the old style, you know, beta cover. So the, the actual picture was only this big. And then you had the design of like the Betamax tape or whatever. Yeah. Great. I saw frogs <laughs> when I was a, a little boy. My mother dropped me off at a local theater and they were showing frogs. And Godzilla versus the Smog Monster. Yeah. And I sat there with my little box of <clears throat> malted milk balls, whoppers. And I tell you, I, I was happy. If I remember me. correctly, I think the only person that dies in the movie Frogs is the guy that has a heart attack in a wheelchair at the end, right? Well, that's Ray Milan. That's yeah, like, but, but like no one else dies in the whole movie, right? China. Oh, there's a couple of people that die. <laughs> okay, maybe that was just the most the most memorable scene. He's the only yeah. important actor that dies. <laughs> yeah, and he, and I guess he's he he expires at the end just from a heart attack. Yeah, yeah. The frogs keep croaking at him, and but he yeah, croaks. Maybe, yeah, maybe that's why it was so memorable. And I don't remember the other deaths. Well, I watched that movie all, every time it was on TV after that, and I always <laughs> I always get a kick out of it. I know yeah. some people think it's terrible, but I think it's terrible in a wonderful way. Yeah. But sometimes when you see a movie when you're a kid in a movie theater, you, they, oh, that's true of Family Plot as well. I yeah. saw that when it first came out, and I was a kid, and I just enjoyed the experience of seeing it. It's not a great movie, yeah, but but uh, it's it's a fun movie and it's pleasant, you know. And the whole experience of seeing a film like that that really was sort of the last time you really could see a movie like that. I mean, that was Hitchcock's last film, 
and they don't they didn't really continue to make movies like that and you know in that style after that i mean there were movies that were tried tried to emulate hitchcock but they always had other aspects to them i suppose even to the to the day to today there are people trying to imitate hitchcock but uh the specific type of entertainment uh, that he made yeah. where, where he really concerned himself with uh, the audience reaction i suppose the only person i could think of that really uh, who was successful in, in doing that was Spielberg. You know, yeah. so many of the films he made have that uh, uh, sense of humor and the suspense and the shocks or the surprise. Uh, Jaws, I guess, being a good example, but Duel as well. Mm-hmm. And maybe it was because of uh, Jaws, the excellence of Jaws, that Hitchcock uh, refused to meet Spielberg. Uh, Bruce Stern talks about how Spielberg tried to meet him when he was making Family Plot, and Bruce Stern said, "Oh, you should meet him. It's just some kid. He wants to come and sit at your yeah. knee." And, <laughs> and Hitchcock said uh, that he could never meet him because he'd be so embarrassed; he would feel like a whore. And Bruce Stern asked him, "What do you mean? Why would you feel like a whore?" He says, "Well, uh, when they did the Jaws attraction at the Universal City Studios, I did the narration for." the Jaws ride. Now, it turns out that wasn't really the case. He had right. done an narration for something, but in his mind, somehow, uh, he, he felt like a whore because he had uh, take, <laughs> taken money to do something that was associated with promotion for Jaws. Yeah. I think what it really was is he recognized that Spielberg was taking what he had done and going a bit far, further. Bigger with it, yeah. Because I don't think Hitchcock could have done Jaws. No. Uh, he was too much of an old uh, old style filmmaker. He would have wanted to do it all on a studio set someplace. You know, that would have been great though. Jimmy oh, Stewart and Cary Grant right, right. bomb that boat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, yes, we missed something by him. <laughs> but even when even when Spielberg was doing movies like Duel, there was very definitely a uh, Hitchcockian yeah. feel to it, and it was Hitchcock plus. You know, is taking it to the next level. Hitchcock specialized in doing that thing where he would sort of expand time. He would sort of uh, uh, focus on details and cause uh, and and break things down into shots so that the simplest action action that in, a, in another movie would be would be by like that. Yeah, it's just sort of stretched out endlessly. A good example is the psycho shower murder or the uh, killing of the villain in. Dawn Curtin, my Paul mm-hmm. Newman and Eve Allman are trying to get the guy's head in. First, they're trying to stab him with a knife, and that doesn't work. And then yeah. she's hitting him with stuff, and then they eventually stick him in an oven, and they, they have to hold him in the oven to get to kill him. That's probably the only memorable scene in Dawn Curtin. <laughs> but he did that all through his, all through his career. Uh, seize on uh, uh, moments in the film that would normally go by in a flash, and break them down, you know, and spread them out, and uh, allow the audience to appreciate every second of it, you know, to, to really get the maximum impact from it. Uh, and that's something that Spielberg became quite good at in movies like Duel and, uh, and Jaws and, you know, yeah. some of those other films. Yeah, so I don't think a lot of people, I mean, you mentioned Spielberg, but I don't think a lot of other people try to copy his style, his look, but his, they've definitely remade <laughs> a lot of his movies. 
Like whether it's you know the rear, they obviously remade Rear Window it was made right. for TV with Chris Reeves, <clears throat> or they just take the story idea and just rename it. There was a movie called Disturbia, I think, and it was basically Rear Window. It was the, the kid from Transformers. I can't remember his name. Shia LaBeouf played in it. But it was basically the same storyline. This kid's under house arrest, so he can't leave. Yeah, I remember Spex's, that. Specs's right. neighbors killed somebody or killed a bunch of girls or something. Well, De- yeah, definitely copied a lot. They even Spex. made a sequel to Birds. Birds to Land's End, I think is what it was called. It was horrible. It was like made for uh, Showtime or something. Uh, uh, well, <laughs> uh, we won't talk about Birdemic. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, Psycho was actually a shot-for-shot remake done by Gus Van Sant. Yeah, which I didn't understand. Gus Van Sant, very talented filmmaker. People still trying to figure out why he did that. I don't know. I guess he thought maybe it was the artsy thing to do. I'm going to remake a movie and just really remake it. (laughs) Well, I guess that's never been done before. It certainly hasn't been done since. It was not a success. But uh, I suppose people think in practical terms, they think, well, if you're going to remake the film uh, at all, why would you want to just do what's already been done? Yeah. And like, we, like we've talked about before, you can't change it because no one's going to like it if it's got a different ending. Yes, or... That's the great quandary that yeah. anybody who's doing a remake is, it finds themselves in. Of course, they did sequels to Psycho and they were fairly successful. Yeah. And there's some people, uh, I think Quentin Tarantino may have even been one of them, who feel that uh, Psycho 2 is a, a, a great movie. A good one, yeah. Worthy uh, companion to the original film. Yeah. Tarantino is apparently not a big fan of uh, Hitchcock. Uh, so I don't know if we can necessarily take you know, take his... Uh, his word for it. Word for that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you'd mentioned Strangers on a Train. That was remade to uh, throw Mama from the train, which was a That's comedy right. with yes. uh, Billy Crystal and Dane DeVito. That's a great movie. Right. It was, you know, it's based off that. Right. So it's, it seems like a lot. Of, it seems like he really influenced <laughs> a lot of other stuff, other than just his directing style. Oh yeah, well, Brian De Palma for a while was sort of the go-to guy for mm-hmm. Hitchcockian thrillers. A bunch of the things that he did were very similar to Hitchcock films. Dressed to Kill. I mean, Hitchcock yeah. never used a split screen. He never used a. What, is that what they call it? Yeah, split screen. Split screen. Yeah. yeah. And you see multiple. Uh, pictures on the screen mm-hmm. once i don't think hitchcock ever used that and he didn't really use a lot of uh big uh, like you know like camera tricks or effects or anything really i mean other uh, than in vertigo i guess would have been the most well you wouldn't notice them uh yeah because That's what i'm whole, saying he didn't yeah there weren't like a lot of weren't obvious what yeah. screens or you know <laughs> yeah well, it was you know big fast zooms or anything like that you know he was a big fan of uh of matte paintings or glass mm-hmm. paintings yeah and the birds is a good example uh, a lot of the stuff that you see of the, of the exteriors is uh glass paintings yeah uh, albert whitlock uh, albert whitlock who was one of the great matte painters he was working with hitchcock all the way up at the family plot i have to admit i can't see what he could have done in family plot uh, I, I don't. I, I'd have to watch the movie again to find where the matte paintings yeah. are. But in movies like uh, The Birds and North by Northwest, uh, North by Northwest is a lot of matte paintings. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, a, a lot of that stuff done on the Mount Rushmore. Those are matte paintings. Matte paintings, yeah. Certain sections that have been left blank for, you know, to superimpose the uh, the actors. 
Spielberg, speaking of Spielberg, I think he could say his uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind may be his great Hitchcock tribute film. Right, yeah. A lot of those scenes of uh, Roy Neary and uh, Richard Dreyfuss and Melinda Dillon trying to get over the base of Devil's Tower. Yeah. That's really just like the scenes uh, with... uh, with uh, Cary Grant and uh, and uh, Eva Marie Saint in North by Northwest, climbing around, climbing around uh, yeah. mush, Mount Mushmore. So uh, I I think that uh, I may have expressed this theory before. I think uh, for Spielberg, Close Encounters was the movie where he went from being a, a sort of uh, a realist director, new wave director, uh, uh, to being a Hitchcock studio bound right? yeah because <laughs> once they get over that hump in there in uh, you know on the other side of devil's tower uh, everything is done on a on a uh, on a uh, studio set actually much earlier in the movie a lot of the stuff is done on on, on a set uh spielberg had reached that point where he wanted the same sort of complete control that hitchcock was always looking for yeah so he would have, like, even if it was just a country road, he'd have the whole fucking thing built on a set. Yeah. <laughs> Which is probably I know, when I, yeah. When, but when I was watching a lot of a lot of these today, a lot of the ones that, that are on set, you know, Rear Window, um, Thirty Nine Steps. I'm assuming was probably on a lot of sets. Um, what else? What else did I watch? Uh, that one for murder would have been sets. But then when I started watching um, To Catch a Thief. <laughs> And they got that big sweeping helicopter scene yes. over. And I was like, oh, that just, that doesn't seem like Hitchcock to me. <laughs> it well, didn't feel like a Hitchcock movie because it was so vast and wide right. open and it wasn't a set, <laughs> you know. And that, that cinematography was up for an, did you mention that already? That cinematographer was up for an Oscar for. I, I was talking about the cinematographer for uh, Vertigo. Oh, okay. Well, uh, it might, Robert, might have been. Robert Burks. Might have been the same guy. I don't know. Yeah. But. It's a beautiful looking movie, and you're right, it does have a lot of that sort of color uh, photography and a lot of um, ex- uh, beautiful exterior shots, but it's all stuff that doesn't have the lead actors in. Yeah. I mean, uh, another instance of all those overhead shots that you're describing when they're driving around mm-hmm. in the mountains, that looks very similar to stuff that they would later do in Goldfinger. Oh, yeah. Uh, but... Uh, Hitchcock had no objection to employing second units. He sent them out to, to, to do that. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> he gave him very specific instructions. Everything was storyboarded. Uh, and a lot of times they would shoot, in addition to those shots that you're describing, they would shoot background plates. Mm-hmm. And then he would do the stuff with the actors in the studio with that either uh, uh, blue screen behind them or rear projected behind them. And uh, that Pretty much is the way uh, uh, to catch a thief works out. Uh, if you watch the film, you can see that there are some scenes where the actors are actually in real places. Right. Yeah. But it's usually walking. They walk through the shot, and then when they get to the scene with the dialogue, then suddenly they're, they're in front of a rear screen. I mean, it, it's it's one of the problems to, for a modern audience this artificiality that his films have, and I think this is particularly true. One of the reasons why. The birds, it maybe isn't as impactful as it once was, yeah. is because it's so obvious in the birds. I mean, it's at a point in development of a film where people are sort of hoping you'd be beyond that. 
But in, in the birds, he's so, Hitchcock was so allergic to doing location shooting that the very first scene that we see Tippi Hendren and she's getting off a, a, a streetcar in mm-hmm. San Francisco and she crosses the street. That's real. She actually got off a real streetcar yeah. across the street. And then as she's crossing the street, uh, the camera passes, has a, uh, a street sign or, or something pass in front of it. And when it comes out the other side, they're on a set. They're on a set, yeah. They're on a street, a set of a street with the with the pet shop that she's going into. So they couldn't even he couldn't even do one continuous pan without escaping to the studio. Yeah, I noticed in Dowling for Murder, the the scenes outside to me look like they were were projected. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. I mean, it works. It works in the movie. I did. I didn't bother me at all. I didn't mind it. Yeah. Like I said, that rear projection and these older movies have a charm that you that you enjoy. Well, also, you sort of, exp- it's part of that world, right? I mean, it's not a realistic world. We, we understand that right at the beginning. So we accept all these things as being part of that world, a sort of Hitchcockian or cinematic yeah. world that they just use those sort of techniques. But by the time you get to birds, because he was going for sort of a visceral horror there, it would be much more powerful if we really believe we're in a real place. Yeah. And this is one of the reasons why I feel it's a terrible shame that with a lot of horror films that are being made nowadays, they are doing stuff on sets and they're doing a lot of stuff in front of green screen. Green screen, yeah. And there's a lot of CGI and it makes the thing look like uh, stuff from a, a video game. Yeah. Rather than feeling like you're in a real situation where people are really in peril. And I don't care how cool the CGI is, it's not going to be hard. It's not going to work, yeah. So, so that might be his one. There's a scene in, I, I saw the birds when I was in my one and only year of film school. I saw it with my uh, film cl- in a film class. And uh, the scene that got the biggest laugh, unintentional laugh, was when Rod Taylor and Tippi Hedren are attending that party for the little girl. Uh, is it Angela Cartwright? No, it's Veronica Cartwright. Mm-hmm. Who would later, later go on to play the pilot in Alien. Yeah. Uh, and they're having the party and the kids are all playing blind man's bluff or something. And, and, um, the two of them leave the party and they co- go up a hill to have a sort of private chat. And by the, and the, and the, and the house, the backyard of the house, that's all real. By the time they get up the hill, they're standing on this obvious set. Yeah. So, so fake with a cycle painted cyclorama behind them. And the audience I saw it with this film school audience, everybody was laughing. You know, because it was so obvious, you know, and you can't stick with a real location, uh, you know, for a minute. You has to way <laughs> yeah. back to the uh, to the to the studio. And I guess it's because he had he felt he had the greatest control. It's also true, though, that we're watching everything now uh, on Blu-ray. I saw the version. Oh, yeah. I yeah. So we see all these little imperfections that the audiences would never have noticed back when they were seeing it projected on a, a screen in a theater. Uh, the clarity of the picture just was not the same. First yeah. of all, they were watching prints that had been made from the original master. So they wouldn't have been, you know, it's not first generation. And also they're watching it being projected uh, by a, probably a, projectionist who doesn't give a shit about focus <laughs> yeah or cleaning the lens cleaning, or cleaning yeah. the glass in front of the yeah <clears throat> and probably being projected on a dirty screen dirty screen yeah because back then they everybody was smoking in the theaters so 
the the audience wouldn't have noticed that. They wouldn't have noticed any of the little jiggling of Mount Rushmore and North Pole yeah. <laughs> and stuff. And they would not have noticed. But now we notice it because we're seeing everything in a way that Hitchcock never intended. He counted on the, the fact that the audience wasn't going to see it in its pristine state. He counted right. on the fact that they were going to see it in a slightly degraded condition because that hid the hit all those little mistakes or those little uh, technical uh, flaws. So I guess we can't blame him. No. But uh, every time I watch the movie, old movies like this, <clears throat> I just think of the anxiety they must go through on shooting on film, waiting to get that film back to see if they even got the shot. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like now it's instant. You know, you film and you look at it. Back yeah. then you had to let it go. I'll get pro I don't know how long it took to process film back then. I don't oh. know how many days it took before they got it back and got to see their dailies. But I can imagine the the stress of, <laughs> do we oh, have yeah. to do that again? <laughs> and, uh, uh, even more stress because uh, when the director was, uh, on the set was shooting, if he did 10 takes, he might only say print one. Yeah. And he printed the one that he thought was the best one. The so best I would one. say that probably that that stress is probably why you want to be on a set. It's more controllable, you yes. know what I'm saying, lighting-wise and all that. That, that may explain it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, to be fair, there really was no, certainly in the days when he first started, in the 20s and 30s, there was no way to shoot these things in real places. Yeah. I mean, he didn't. they didn't even have a monitor to, to look at, right? Just the, just the eyepiece of the camera. And even if he had a monitor, which didn't really exist, I think, until it was only in the 60s when yeah. I think it was Jerry Lewis, of all people, <laughs> first started to use a video camera so he could see, see what the, the camera yeah. seen. But uh, even if Hitchcock had had that, I don't think he would have used it. Probably not. His thing was, uh, uh, I planned everything out. I hire the best people. And if I look at the camera I, and I see what lens you're using, I know whether or not you're going to be It's going to work, or, yeah. And uh, that he prided himself on that. So I, I don't even know if he ever, usually directors will get a peek in the, in the camera to see what the, how the shot has been set up. Yeah. You know, DP will uh, you know, ask the director to check the shot. What's uh, the other thing that you see? I see uh, Spielberg with it all the time, hangs it around his neck. Viewfinder? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. Is that just a viewfinder or does that have like, can they replicate different lenses with that little? Yes, thing? that's the purpose. Of okay. He wants to see if, that shot is going to watch shot, medium shot. Yeah. Right. What do we want? Right. So, but, uh, I guess I think that's the first time I've seen one with Spielberg. He always wore, yeah. he always, is that him? That wears, he wears it around his neck or is he, it? Uh, there are photos with him with, you yeah. know, doing that and looking through it. I, I don't think there's any photos with Hitchcock ever looking through a viewfinder. Nah. There might be some shots of him looking through the camera, right. know, actually at the camera, looking through the viewfinder of the camera. But, uh, uh, yeah, he, he, uh, showed up, every day he liked a very workmanlike approach right he wanted to come in at a certain time and go home at a certain time he wasn't one of these people that wanted to stay to stay all day yeah. midnight you know <clears throat> and he showed up every day with his black suit and tie and he expected his uh, crew to be properly dressed and uh, he he wanted it to be i suppose like a factory environment yeah and he said something to uh, i think it was william devane or bruce turn on his last film about how important it was when he was in the studio and he sees all those people coming in in the morning with their lunch pail and whatnot. He says, we're doing this for them. We're keeping them employed. Right. Uh, he was, he was delighted by the idea of 
being able to be a part of that process that employs this large number of people, everybody is an expert in what they do, and they're turning out a product that makes vast amounts of money when it works. And uh, he liked that idea. It was, uh, that was a motivation for him. And when he decided that he couldn't continue after he'd finished Family Plot, which apparently was a bit of a struggle for him because he wasn't in good health, right. and he called one of his, one of his uh, I think it was assistant director or one of the uh, associate producer or somebody like that. Oh, actually, it was a production designer, I think. Somebody had worked with quite a bit. He called him to his office and he said, I can't go on. Uh, no, I can't do it anymore. And the guy said, well, why not? They already had a script. He said, you don't have to, Hitchcock said, I can't go on location anymore. Yeah. And he said, well, you don't have to go on location. Just tell us what you want us to shoot. I said, no, I can't do it. And he said, you have to, you have to tell the Wasserman. That's the head <laughs> of the studio. He was too embarrassed. He yeah. felt like he was letting people down by, by dying. Yeah. <laughs> As a dedicated fellow. Yeah. For I can't die or everybody will hate me. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, he also managed to make himself a very wealthy man because yeah. he, with the pr proceeds from Psycho and some of his other films, Psycho, I, I think especially, uh, was an enormously profitable film for him. And because Paramount, Par it, the project started at Paramount, Paramount didn't want to do it. So Hitchcock basically ended up, I, I guess, pitching in a, a, a good part of the money and he did it on his, on the uh, with his crew from the TV show. Oh yeah, that's why Psycho has a feel that's similar to his TV show. Uh, it was shot, actually shot uh, with his uh, TV people. Oh, was that NBC? Uh, is it I, on the Universal backlot? Is that where the house was? It at? was shot on the okay, uh, Universal okay. backlot. Yes, and apparently he was in the process of transitioning over to Universal because a few years after. Uh, uh, Psycho had been released, uh, Paramount sold its interest to Universal. So now it's strictly, even though it still has Paramount's name on the front yeah. of it, uh, it's a, a universal, all that stuff is owned by Universal. And he became a Universal guy for the, I think for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. uh, not that it was that much longer, it did birds yeah. and uh, Torn Curtain, Topaz, Frenzy and Family Plot. Frenzy is an interesting example of the one movie he made that was really completely naturalistic. He didn't do it all in, on location. They actually used sets, but they had figured out by that point that they had to make the sets look like real places. Yeah. Match the real places that they were shooting in elsewhere. Uh, and that's, a, that's not my favorite Hitchcock film. It's interesting. It has some interesting moments in it, but it's a little too cool and a little too uh, mean-spirited. Yeah. What was, the, what was the first one he cameoed in? Because I know that was his big thing, too. Oh, I don't remember. I noticed, I noticed he was on the... I know, I know where he's at in, rear, in uh, rear Window, Psycho, obviously. And I noticed today when I was watching uh, Catch a Thief, he's on the bus whenever. Uh, that's one of his more obvious ones. Obviously, yeah, because he's like, they're on there for a couple minutes. I can't remember what the first one. I, did, I, I noticed I didn't notice him in any of the like uh, early films that I watched, like 39 Steps or any of those. Well, he's in there. Uh, Is he? Okay. <laughs> uh, he's, uh, his first one, I think, uh, was in The Lodger. I think he plays one of the people that's chasing the guy at the end or one of those spectators. And I think that at, at that point, it was really just a, a, a functional thing. They needed somebody, yeah. you know. Uh, by the time he got to the 39 Steps, 
I don't know if he was really recognizable. He was recognizable to me when I watched the movie, but it doesn't look like it was meant to be recognized. Yeah. So it probably was with the later films that he that it started. When once the word got out that he was actually in these films, then people started doing just what we're doing now. Yeah. So we're, we're like, where's <laughs> Waldo? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> and he, he said that uh, with the later movies, he started putting himself into the film earlier and earlier so that people wouldn't spend the whole movie wondering Watch when he's going to pop yeah. up. <laughs> In, in a family plot, uh, I guess he's just a silhouette. So his last appearance in a movie was just as the black silhouette on a, yeah. a glass window. I guess the birds is the one where he walks past the pet shop with the dog. That's right. And those yeah. were do- those that's were his, like the, his two, dogs, yeah. two beloved dogs. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's the more famous one that everybody talks yes. about. Well, that, he certainly got it in right at the beginning, right? Yeah. <laughs> but Birds is interesting because the idea was to start the movie as, a, this is similar to what we were talking about with Psycho, uh, where it's, it's sort of structured like a joke, where you start a movie and the audience thinks that this is going to be like a romantic comedy. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, it's going along very nicely. And then suddenly a bird swoops down, hits her on the head, and it's a completely different type yeah. of movie from that point on. Right. So like so back then I can imagine, I mean, if there weren't trailers, and I imagine they were trailers, they probably had trailers for these back then, right? For these movies. He did a trailer that was very similar to the trailer <clears throat> he did for Psycho, where he okay. just walked through the story. Yeah. Basically. So but I can imagine it being more effective if you had no clue. You know, I'm saying if you're going into it with, oh, look, it's a yeah, it's a it's a comedy or a love love story, and then the birds attack. You know, it'd right. be more. But if you if you know if if we're anticipating that eventually birds are going to attack and kill people, kind of takes yeah. away from it. You know, but that that was my that was my, my problem with the movie Predator. I think if I would have went into that movie not knowing anything about it, oh, look, it's just an action movie. This army troop is going into the jungle. Right. to rescue these people and then they get attacked by an alien but at the beginning of the movie they show that the alien ship crash on earth and i'm like okay well then you just if if you didn't know anything about it going into it it would have been the greatest movie right. ever oh that's a good point yeah uh, sometimes giving too that's much why that's why i hate trailer yeah, that's why i hate watching i was like oh did you see a new trailer no yeah. i'm gonna go into the movie not knowing anything i don't and especially nowadays they give the, they give away the whole movie in the trailer yeah you well, lose, you lose the energy, you lose the uh, enjoyment of it. One can assume that with a lot of movies that are made now and back uh, in the day, uh, the best stuff is the stuff that's in the trailer. And so, yeah. if it looks really great, that's not necessarily a guarantee that the rest of the movie is going to be that great. But the uh, the trailers that he would do would play on his persona. Yeah, you know, it's him talking to the him audience. on set. Yeah, and I suppose. That might have been effective, particularly for Psycho, because people might have gone to it thinking it was kind of a funny movie, you know, it's yeah. a, uh, maybe something like The Addams Family or something, you know, it's a, kind of a dark uh, comedy, but it certainly wasn't that. No. <laughs> Psycho is the first movie that they have a toilet. In. A toilet, a flushing toilet. That's what, toilet, I, yeah. yeah. And it's uh, the first, I think the first studio film where the actress is in a bra. Is that uh, right? Oh, that could be it, yeah. The beginning of the film. Uh, so a lot of these things that were considered shocking at the time don't really shock anybody anymore. Right, oh yeah. But, uh, and I suppose in that sense, that's the big problem that Hitchcock faced, was that he was, oh, you think about it, it's an amazing career. He started oh, yeah. silent there and he was still making movies in the 70s. Yeah. <laughs> so, so if he isn't really 
doing hip stuff anymore. It's not really surprising, right? Yeah. Uh, it would really be amazing if he had been doing movies that were as fresh as things that Truffaut was doing. That would really be astonishing. He would have to be oh, yeah. a completely different a filmmaker, you know. But uh, he did, uh, towards the end, he did talk about a project that I guess was, supposed, was going to be more sexually explicit and more experimental. Because I think he saw a lot of those European filmmakers, what they were doing, and he really admired it. And he, he wanted to try to get on the bandwagon, get some of that, that sort of attention. Yeah. Uh, but the, uh, he apparently couldn't, couldn't get it off the ground. The studios weren't interested in financing it. So and it probably it's just as well. Yeah. The, the idea of a man his age doing a, you know, a sexy movie <laughs> in this in the late sixties or early. God, 70s. yeah. Think about what his cameo would be in that one. <laughs> yeah. The, <laughs> yes. Uh, Naked man in the corner or something. <laughs> one one shudders the thing. <laughs> yeah. But all, all the uh, the the question of sex is something that floats over all of his movies. Uh, for a person who appeared to be essentially sexless, uh, the fact that so much of his, uh, so many of his films uh, are essentially about sex about yeah. them, is really interesting. And it, uh, I know he said that when he was doing one of his early films, uh, there was a, they were on location uh, somewhere, and the actress had to jump into into a river or something. And she couldn't do it. She wasn't, there wasn't an English, wasn't uh, an English speaker, didn't speak fluent English, but she indicated to the crew why she couldn't do it. And Hitchcock asked them and they said, she's menstruating. And he had no idea what they were talking about. Right. <laughs> and this is something that he emphasizes frequently in his, uh, in the interview they do with Truffaut is his naivete about sexual matters. Yeah. And he tries to make himself sound like uh, a kid, you know, and, and all this stuff is new to, to him. Uh, but at the same time, he, he uh, just loves double entendre dialogue, you know. Oh, yeah. Every one of his films has something suggested in it. And he also did a lot of films that touch on homosexuality. Mm -hmm. uh, even fairly early on, one of the, I think one of the silent movies he did involved, uh, had some uh, homosexual theme. But obviously, yeah, 39, 39 steps. There were two, the scene where the woman comes into the room, the two guys are in bed together. And now I don't know if it was supposed to have been, they were supposed to be a gay couple or if it was just a, you know, there was no heat. <laughs> so we're trying to just keep warm. But I mean, it was. Oh, and the movie. lady vanishes. Yeah, yeah. And the lady yes, vanishes. Right, yeah, yes. yeah. Yeah. Wrong movie. Yeah. Well, they, uh, I'm sure they were. I mean, homosexuality wasn't just invented. Well, so yeah, sure. I know that. But it wasn't as like people didn't put it on film as much. Right. Well, he, he did one movie where it actually was a, a key part of the story uh, where somebody murders someone to cover up, uh, you know, suspicion of them yeah. being involved in something. Uh, but uh, he uh, he did rope where the play obviously had those characters as gay characters. Right. Uh the I guess it's based on Leopold and Lowell, uh, murders, a murder, which is a famous uh, murder, uh, murder trial. Those guys were gay, a gay couple. And the guy who played in uh, Rope, Folly Granger, he was gay. And he played uh, in Strangers on a Train. 
not as a gay man, but as a character who was interacting, there was a homoerotic or homosexual angle to their relationship, the relationship between him and Guy. Right. And Guy is very definitely sort of a coded gay character. Uh, Another mother character also, his mother is sort of uh, empty-headed eccentric. Uh, and he seems to, and he, he hates his father. So this is Hitchcock getting all Freudian on us. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, he used Montgomery Clift in uh, I Confess. Montgomery Clift was one of the few, uh, I don't know if he was open, uh, but he it was known that he was gay. Yeah. Was, uh, and Hitchcock seemed to have a curiosity about those guys. And I guess it came down to he, uh, he couldn't really even grapple with heterosexuality. And I guess he was just amazed that there could be guys that would actually be, <laughs> yeah. you know, would allow themselves to be known as homosexuals. It must have just uh, tickled his uh, curiosity. Uh, and and that's, so that's something that keeps popping up in his movies. Right. Uh, whether or not he, uh, he's essentially a, a sexless creature, but, uh, you know, Maybe he had some curiosity about that as well. It's interesting. People always talk about how he tortures his leading ladies, but he tortured some of his leading men as Me well. Too, yeah. And the fact that he picked somebody like Cary Grant, who's probably the best looking guy uh, in movies at the time, to be his repeated sort of surrogate in, in the films. And Cary Grant was also gay. He, that probably wasn't something that Hitchcock knew. Right. But uh, so it's interesting to see how. Uh, sex and also uh, a deviant, uh, what would have been considered yeah. at the time, reverse or deviant sexual uh, tastes uh, are all sort of intermingled. His obsession with mothers is, is something that runs through all his films as well. Yeah. The Notorious Mother and the North by Northwest Mother and the Strangers on a Train Mother and the Birds Mother. And yeah. I think the Birds probably, the mother gets the most interesting arc class uh, her story basically is uh, she's afraid of losing uh, her family she's afraid of losing people that she can take care of right by the end of the movie she has somebody <laughs> finally to take care of right the least likely person yeah uh, uh, but now she has a, a child to protect again uh, so that was an interesting insight i think and some of those scenes that he has uh, after the initial bird attack in the house where Jessica Tandy is sort of walking around trying to clean things up. Yeah. That's very well done, you know. Like she's take, t- touching like teacups or something and the dead bird falls off and she jumps <laughs> <Yeah>. in. <laughs> uh, that, that's, that, that, to have that going on while he's talking with the, sh- uh, with the sheriff is a nice counterpoint, you know. I should see what, how it's affecting her personally. For, yeah. While they're talking about, you know. What, what has happened, the, the, the details of what has happened. Yeah. And the fact that uh, I guess he has Tippi Hedren watching her. So she's gaining an insight into the character as well. Yeah. So that's good. I like the fact that he did movies like that. And rather than just focusing on birds, he focused on the people. All the people, it's the characters. Just, yeah. It's a story about <clears throat> that's, a, that's the most important part of the, the movie. Yes. The movies, anyways, are the characters. If you don't have good characters, who gives a who care who cares what's attacking them and in a sense it's it's the story of the tippy hedron character and the mother you know their story actually is resolved we don't know how 
the bird situation is going to be resolved. Right. But in a sense, it can't really be resolved in one movie, right? There would be no point in trying to resolve it. Right, yeah. So uh, the guy who wrote the script uh, said he had an additional scene of them going to, I guess, getting to the San Francisco, uh, the Golden Gate Bridge, and it's all covered with birds. And there's a scene of them trying to get across the bridge or something like that. Anyway, Hitchcock threw all of that away. Yeah. Because he knew that he had made his point. He didn't need to go any further. <laughs> Well, he definitely uh, he definitely picked some uh, <clears throat> some of the most beautiful leading ladies in movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Every single one of the movies I've watched so far have been nice. Uh, uh, I, I have to say, like I said, I think Grace Kelly is uh, almost supernatural. Uh, oh yeah, physical beauty, and all, all the other people, most of all of the other people uh, that he did use in his movies, all the actresses are remarkably uh, glamorous and attractive. Uh, uh, perhaps family plot, or actually frenzy would be the, the first instance where he wasn't really using particularly glamorous women. Right. <laughs> uh, I don't think there's anybody in in either one of those films. Well, Karen Black is in Family Plot. I guess she would have been considered as glamorous as you get. Yeah. At that at that point in film history. Funny thing was she ended up being the star of that movie. Uh, she had had enough success right around that time. She had like two or three big hits. So she ended up being the top billed uh, person, at least on right, the movie yeah. posters. Um, well, William Devane, that was, his, I think, his first film. And Bruce Stern had done a lot of other stuff, including doing a lot of other stuff with uh, Hitchcock. He was in Marnie. He played the uh, abusive father. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then he did a bunch. Of, I guess he got along so well with Hitchcock that Hitchcock got him into a bunch of his TV shows. So by the time he did Family Plot, he was an old old friend. Hitchcock uh, told him that he wasn't the first choice. Though. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, I, Bert Dern asked him, "Why why did you pick me?" And he said, well, "Because Mr. Pacanow asked for a million dollars." Mr. Pacanow was Al Pacino. Yeah. So uh, uh, he <laughs> he was actually pretty snotty with service actors yeah <laughs> uh he originally hired roy thinnis to play william devane's part in family plot uh no i'm sorry he, he originally wanted william devane william devane wasn't available so he hired roy thinnis and they had actually shot some of the movie when william devane became available he right just, he just fired roy thinnis <laughs> roy thinnis apparently confronted him in a restaurant came right up to his table and said why'd you throw, why'd you fire me and Hitchcock didn't say anything. He just stared, stared at him and eventually Roy Thinnis walked off. But uh, after the movie was completed, after William Devane, and I thought William Devane was very entertaining in that movie. I thought he did a terrific job. But what Bruce Stern says that he was sitting with him in a screening and afterwards he turned to him and referring to William Devane, he said, yeah. I, th I think I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> he wasn't, wasn't pleased with William Devane. Yeah. And he didn't like Karen Black. So he, he didn't have a nice word for anybody. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but I guess he was old and, and losing his patience. Yeah. You know, one thing I always think about when I watch his movies uh, or any of these movies from this time era, <laughs> what happened to guys wearing three-piece suits all the time? <laughs> you mean me now? Yeah. Like, yeah. what? that's never came back. And I think if I came back, I would do it. I would totally wear a three-piece suit all the time. Well, I think no matter know, how hot it is, I mean, I, I can imagine yeah. it being, you know, 100 degrees outside, and you're, you know, they're out there in a suit jacket and a button-up well, shirt. But 
Well, things have changed. It seemed, like a, it just seemed like a cool style back then. You know what I'm saying? Well, you, you ever see pictures of like city streets back in the 30s, right up into the 60s? Yeah. And what you see is a sea of men wearing suits, suits. hats, and you see a sea of women wearing dresses. Yeah. And uh, at a certain point, that just ceased to be the case. I'm going to blame hippies. I'm going to say hippies destroyed that. that did, that's yeah. probably when it happened. Two features, two two factors. <clears throat> like First of all, uh, the ability of uh, clothes manufacturers to turn out clothes in a wide variety of styles. Mm -hmm. uh, back in the day, uh, I've, Alan Bennett, the uh, the writer, British writer, he talks about how his father had two suits. That was it. That was right, his yeah. <laughs> He Had one suit for work and one suit for special occasions. And because he was a butcher, the suit that he wore at work was always greasy. So yeah, and you had to have a special suit for special occasions. But that was it. And for most me, most men, that was the case. That was the case, yeah. You know, I mean, my father, he worked as a, a superintendent for the housing authority, and he always wore the blue uniform that he wore as a superintendent. That he wore that around the house. He wore that when when he was at work. That was his uniform. Uh, so that was like the working class version of a suit. You would see sometimes you would see guys in those sort of work work clothes like yeah. gas station attendants and things like that. Right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, it's also true that it made storytelling much easier because uh, not just the suits, but there was sort of a uniform way that people behaved. You could tell stories uh, in, a, in a way so that every member of the audience knew how characters would behave just by the way they dressed. By the way they dressed, yeah. You know? And you can't do that anymore, right? No. I mean, you watch movies now, and it's like everybody's wearing T-shirt and jeans, and uh, it's almost impossible to, to to glean anything about their character from their mode of dress. Right? Yeah. Uh, but that's also the youth culture. Yeah, um, yeah. 50s came along, and everybody started to want to dress like a teenager. Uh, and we're probably still in that phase, myself included. Yeah. <laughs> Dressing like a teenager is certainly much less expensive than wearing suits all the time. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've got cartoon T-shirts and stuff I wear. But I, I, I think if, if that style came back, I would I would totally do it. <laughs> well, maybe you should try. You'll, you'll be the guy that brings it back. I could, Yeah, I could bring it back. You see me at Walmart stocking shelves in a <laughs> suit. <laughs> well, it's funny to think that uh, even as up, even as late as uh, Francis Ford Coppola, uh, there were directors that insisted that their crew wear suits. Suits, yeah. Uh, I know Fra Francis Ford Coppola was doing that up until fairly late. He felt that that was important to create the feeling that everybody was a professional, you know, yeah. and, and like the idea of people showing up in cutoffs and things like that, you know. Yeah. Of course, uh, of course, I know that they didn't wear suits all the time. I know, I've seen, you know, cardigans and, you know, sweaters or whatever. I know there's different styles, but I just think that every time you see those movies, every time you watch a movie, they're, they're always, always in suits. Well, they were always, uh, the, the when you look at the, uh, the importance of the suit in uh, the, for Cary Grant in those movies, I mean, yeah. he's almost, with the exception of a few scenes where he's in North by Northwest, where he's wearing a bath towel or something mm -hmm. like that. He's almost always in a suit. The suit is yeah. a part of his character, right? And that became true for James Bond as well. Uh, you look at the early Bond films, and that suit is the suit. Yeah, that's him. That's the that defines the character. Uh, so it is important. I mean, 
the uh, the to be able to know what role the character is playing, what role that actor is playing in the film, the, the the position he holds in the sort of hierarchy of the cast is this an important person? Yeah. <laughs> in the story. If they're dressed in a suit and wearing a tie right away, you, say, you think, oh, yeah, there must be important. Must be somebody we should be paying attention yeah. to. Of course, I even liked I even like Jimmy Stewart's pajamas in Rear Window. Like <laughs> some of those, they look really comfortable. I'm surprised they don't have a line of uh, <laughs> yeah. clothing fashions from Hitchcock films. Because yeah. he was very particular about the clothes, especially the leading ladies wore. Oh yeah, you know he had Edith Head in there doing designs. Edith Head became famous as Hollywood's uh, best costume designer, probably to a certain extent because of the work she did on Hitchcock's films. Right. But uh, uh, yeah, Jimmy Stewart is always wearing a suit. I thought it was interesting. Well, in Vertigo, I think he gets out of the suit for uh, for a brief time mm -hmm. after he rescues Kim Novak from the yeah from the water. <laughs> from the water yeah. But uh, throughout most of the rest of the movie, he's wearing a suit and tie and wearing and wearing a hat. Now, Rear Window is uh, unusual, but that's only because he was kind yeah. of less. <laughs> yeah, we weren't expecting to be sitting in a wheelchair wearing a suit, but. Uh, yeah, I think that's an important part of uh, being a guy that worked on silent movies. He wanted to be able to use sort of like iconic imagery. He wanted the audience to know at a glance who these people are. Yeah. So uh, the suit and the hat and the tie, particularly if it was an expensive suit or a fashionable suit, that was an important thing to be able to help the audience to understand who this person is and how how they should take him yeah, yeah. but uh and i sort of missed that in a way because uh i remember because uh, as a bond fan i remember the uh, all through the bond series even when the roger moore era was upon us uh, that there was something uh, uh exciting about seeing somebody who was the sort of a uh, perfect person right an icon somebody you could look up to and say what's the one thing we can imitate Oh, he can get a suit like that. We can that. get a suit, yeah. I mean, the rest of you can't look like Roger Moore. You can't look like Sean Connery, but you can wear a suit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I guess that's, for, to a large extent, that's what Hollywood movies were all about for a long time, was sort of presenting these role models to us, right? giving us an idea of how we should behave as men or women. Right, yeah. And now, of course, everything has become so complicated in, in those regards that it's a free for all and you know there's there's you never know uh how you should take characters and, yeah and makes storytelling a little more complicated i'm not objecting to it i think it's a healthy oh, thing yeah but, yeah but it was there's something that even the most uh uh, uh should we say revolutionary or rebellious person uh there's a certain comfort that they must take when they watch these old movies and they realize there was a time when everybody pretty much knew how they should be how they should dress yeah. how they should act you know it's not a world that we would necessarily want to live in now but it's comforting to occasionally escape into that world All right so so I'm what's glad. uh so what's your what's your overall favorite hitchcock film well i think i'm probably with you on uh rear window being very near the top uh, I suppose Rear Window, uh, Psycho, uh, I would include The Birds, uh, Strangers on a Train, and Notorious. Uh, those would be my top top ones. 
Uh, the man who knew too much, 39 steps, and the lady vanishes are also, I mean, they were a little too uh, light and a little too frivolous yeah. to really put them at the very top, but they're wonderful movies. And, and, and certainly from a technical standpoint, they're very impressive. Even now, to be able to watch movies yeah. from so long ago <laughs> and to be caught up in them so completely is remarkable, you know? So th- those would be the ones. Vertigo, I've never been a, a terrific fan of. I appreciate it, but I don't love it. Uh, North by Northwest, I used to like it a lot more than I do now. I think I, I think I do too. I think uh, I don't know. I, I remember liking it a lot when I'd seen it before, but I don't know. I guess it just didn't stick with me. Yeah, it might be the same problem that I have with the birds, and that it's a little too artificial. Yeah, you know, and it's a talk about a contrived plot. I mean, I know they were intentional. <laughs> yeah, but uh, frenzy, uh, you know, interesting, uh, but not not one of his greats. Uh, family plot, I would say, uh, pleasant and not a terrible way to go out, but not a, not a particularly memorable film. Uh, the one, I guess, or the two that I would uh, say that I'm particularly impressed with now that I wasn't really that impressed with in the past is uh, Shadow of a Doubt and Rope. Mm-hmm. Uh, Shadow of a Doubt is, was a real revelation. That's, a, that's an excellent movie. And I'm going to watch that again soon. I'll have to put that on my list. I didn't get to that one this time. And uh, Rope is one that I don't think anybody really ever thought was particularly important. And now I'm seeing increasingly uh, videos popping up on YouTube of people reassessing it. Yeah, saying, it was it was remade, I think, in the early 2000s. I think I remember seeing a remake of it. Well, uh, well, I, I, that particular version, I, I, I haven't seen the remake, but that particular version. I think is very interesting and very impressive in its way. It's kind of a simplistic handling of those themes, yeah. but it still has a remarkable dramatic impact. And the fact that it's so simple is what impresses me that you can generate that much suspense with a premise that's so simple and basic. Also notorious. I think that's another one that I would really point to and say, even if you've seen it and you weren't particularly impressed by it, go back and watch it again because it'll sneak up on you begin yeah. to realize how beautifully done it is, you know? Yeah. It's really a, a terrific movie. Yeah. Well, like I said, Rear Window is definitely my top number one Hitchcock film of all time. And I don't know if it's because it's the first one I've seen or because it's just that great of a movie. <laughs> I'm going to say it's because it's that, that great of a movie. Yeah, I but think I, But I, I'd always been a fan of his, like, his later films. Uh, you know, this one, Vertigo, uh, Psycho, obviously, is yeah. I really enjoy Psycho. But doing this episode and going back and watching older stuff that I'd never seen before, 39 Steps, I think is great. Yeah. The Lady Vanishes is another great one. That one from, like, I'm going to go back and watch a lot of his. I started watching Rebecca. Oh, yeah. That's that was really one. interesting. I didn't get to finish it because we were getting ready to start. But and a very unusual back. I'm going to go back and finish that one because I didn't know where it was going to. <laughs> I was like, I don't well, know where this is going. <laughs> that, that might be one of the rare instances where Hitchcock did something that was really not his thing you know right. it was david oselnik uh assigned him to that project but it, it actually turned out very well probably because uh, the source material was strong enough intriguing enough and he could bring his little touches to it uh, it's not really a hitchcock film but it's a beautifully right, crafted yeah. film and it's very very interesting and entertaining so yeah that's definitely a good one there's a, a bunch of like paradigm case and uh, spellbound uh, some people might be fans I always felt that they were a little too gimmicky. Yeah. I may go back and give murder another shot because it seemed like it was probably going to be a jury courtroom drama, maybe. Uh A a big uh, one. I just whenever I was watching it, 
uh, a big chunk of the cast in the opening credits was it just said the jury. Oh boy! It listed yeah. everybody, so I'm like, okay, maybe I'll, but so maybe I'll go back and give it another shot. But yeah, well, I mean, the the I think the thing that we come away with is a realization that there's it's pretty obvious why he's considered such a great filmmaker. Oh yeah. Somebody to have so many great movies where even the lesser films are entertaining. Yeah. You know? I mean, just so, having this discussion, I've gained more. Uh, respect for him that I did before we talked. You know, mm -hmm. when you know when you mentioned how long he'd been doing it, yeah. and how many great movies he had in that time. You know, most people fall off after three or four movies. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, and he just kept going and just all these great movies. And I've got so many more that I gotta go back and you know catch up on and watch. Yeah. Well, his ability to tell stories that had a sort of personal uh, element to them. You know. He's sort of, there's a little bit of him in the story, but at the same time, they're very entertaining, very accessible to audiences. Yeah. That is a unique, unique gift. So yeah, we won't see his like again, I don't and think. They, and I didn't watch, I didn't get to rewatch any of the Hitchcock Presents. No, I haven't watched it. But I either. remember, I remember liking it when it was on. Oh yeah. When I'd watch were... reruns on syndication or whatever. It was a very entertaining show. He yeah. didn't. He didn't really direct any. Though he just done the opening. Well, he directed a couple of them, Did but he? He, okay. not every episode by any means. Uh, I think it started originally as um, it had a different title when it started. Was it supposed had, to be like a competition for like Twilight Zone or Night Galleries or something, or was it just? Well, a, interestingly, uh, the people who worked on Boris Karloff, uh, Boris Karloff's Thriller show. Mm -hmm. They claim that he uh, maneuvered things so that they got canceled. <laughs> so he could move in. <laughs> right. he, they were doing, they weren't doing uh, Hitchcocky and stuff, but they were doing a black and white hour long uh, horror show. Yeah. That I guess some people might've thought was similar to the type of stuff Hitchcock yeah. does. Now Hitchcock presents it wasn't horror though. It was more no. murder. No. Yeah, he never Order really mysteries, did. Yeah, more suspense stories. There were elements of the of the macabre and, and the grotesque. Yeah, in, in, in all those stories and in all his movies, but the, with the exception of Psycho and the Birds and Frenzy, yeah, he never never really did anything that could be called horror horror. Or, yeah, but at the time, he he seemed to have that. Uh, the people seemed to sort of mush all of that stuff together. They saw him as being part of that genre. Yeah. Uh, when he saw the success that uh, Boris Karloff's thriller had, I guess he had some contacts uh, with the uh, with the networks that were that was airing. I forget which network it was airing Boris Karloff, and I guess he just put in the word that he'd be willing to do a show like that. But they had to get rid of Boris first. Yeah. <laughs> so Boris went, and he came on, and he was on for years. Oh yeah. Like I said, I remember watching it in reruns, but yeah. I haven't seen it in a long time. I'm sure it's available somewhere. Oh yeah, I imagine TV or somewhere. Yeah, I imagine it's all out on DVDs and probably on. Uh, you might even be able to find some of them on YouTube. Yeah, uh, but uh, fun show, always entertaining. Uh, he relied more. He picked stories more uh, on the basis of the surprise twist at the end. Yeah, and that wasn't really something he did in his movies that much. Uh, you know, most of his films weren't like oh Henry stories where the whole thing was just <laughs> yeah. surprise at the end. But it made a good, made for a good uh, TV show, you know, to have surprise twists. Yeah. And of course, he knew enough about production by that time that he could make a very slick TV show, probably oh, yeah. better. Uh, Boris Goloff was sort of hit and miss. They had some great episodes and they had some not so great episodes. 
but I seem to remember Alfred Hitchcock being very consistent. The episodes were always solid, you know. I don't think I've seen a Twilight Zone episode that I hated. Oh, Twilight Zone was very good as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a couple of ones that were on the weak side. Usually when Twilight Zone tried to do comedy episodes, they floundered. A yeah. Bit. But, uh, 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 yeah, they were consistent. Uh, Twilight Zone and Alfred Hitchcock Presents and Thriller might have benefited from the fact that they all had a unique look. I think it's particularly true of... of uh, of uh, Twilight Zone. Yeah. A lot of people wonder, well, why can't they do that again? You know, and that's plenty of great stories to tell. Why can't they? It's because that show had a, a special look to it. Yeah. I mean, they have, just, the, they have the new version, but it's not as good. Doesn't seem to have taken the world by storm. Nah. I don't think you can do it. I mean, I if I was, uh, who's the fellow, the talented director, the, the Peel? Yeah, Jordan Peel. I would have said to him, you know, don't do the Twilight Zone. Do something like the do something. Twilight Zone. Yeah, do something. Come up with your own version of the Twilight Zone. And then people can appreciate it for what it is instead of constantly comparing it. Comparing it to, it to the Twilight, Twilight Zone, Zone, yeah. Because you can't do the Twilight Zone. Even Rod Serling couldn't do the Twilight Zone. Yeah. He tried to do Night Gallery. Night Gallery wasn't as good, yeah. No, didn't work. Like a couple, couple of good episodes. But yeah. Nothing, nothing and then like they brought back Twilight Zone, I guess, in the 90s at some point. It wasn't as good. The Outer Limits they tried to bring back. Yeah. It had a couple of good episodes, but didn't last long. So Yeah. they. I mean, it's always, if you look at the names on the screen that most people don't bother looking at, mm -hmm. those people what made those shows good. Yeah. The certain actors that they were always using, certain directors that they were always using. Uh, uh, on, for instance, The Outer Limits, uh, Stefano was the guy that wrote the script for Psycho. Yeah. Uh, and there, he had a certain thing in mind when he created Outer Limits. He had a certain type of story that he wanted to tell. So there was a consistency. There was a thematic consistency, uh, consistency through the show, right? I mean, the same is true of Star Trek as well, right? You have a person who has a, a, an idea of what they want to do. It may not be a perfect idea, right. but it's a consistent idea, and you see the same types of things every episode. Uh, when they update these shows, like The Twilight Zone, uh, particularly now, they are going outside the world of what the Twilight Zone would normally have restricted itself. Right. To. Yeah. Uh, and that's a mistake. I mean, the Twilight Zone felt very much like filmed plays as well, mm -hmm. and they were meant to be sort of like a little. You know, they always had a a, a message. Uh, there was always a social uh, Com yeah, social commentary. commentary to it. Yeah. But they were like little. Uh, pieces of candy they were short like a like a great short story yeah uh sh short simple with a little twist at the end yep. you know and the folks who made the most recent version of the twilight zone they seem to want to do something more elaborate uh, you know uh more ambitious yeah that's the case that's fine but don't do the twilight zone yeah else, yeah know? call it something different right. call it Tells from the crypt, or <laughs> I, I bet you, on the basis of the success mm -hmm. of his movies, if Peel had gone and done his own anthology horror show, mm -hmm. it would have been a great hit. It would have been a great, yeah. And he wouldn't have had all these annoying people <clears throat> saying, "Oh, Science Case the Twilight Zone." Yeah, because yeah. <laughs> I remember uh, "Tells from the Dark Side" was a great show. That was fun, yeah. Lasted yeah. for a while. I mean, because they weren't trying to copy anything, it was just. Right. There was a period there where there were a lot of those shows. Like there was a Tales from the Unexpected, uh, mm -hmm. Road Doll stories. A lot of those were very clever and well done. Uh, but 
I don't know. That's the other thing. I don't know if there's any market for that type of story anymore. Yeah. Why do the, uh, I guess the creep show is doing pretty good on shutter. That's true. Yeah. I haven't seen any yet, but yeah. it, it, it's, it's pretty good. good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess what it comes down to ultimately is if you have a good story, then it's going to work. It's going to work. Yeah. If you don't have a story that people are interested in, then you're going to be out of luck. <laughs> then it's just all has to be visuals. Right? And, I, and like I say, I think that's true of Hitchcock as well. When he had great source material, he had great movies. Oh, yeah. When he had material that wasn't right for him or it wasn't really very good stuff, then you had stuff that wasn't very good, you know, stuff right. that wasn't memorable. Uh, and it, it seemed to take him a long time to realize that he should be doing this one type of thing. I'm saying, yeah. But once that sunk in, he kept going and doing it. And that's where we got all the great movies from. Oh, yeah. Well, I definitely recommend if no one's, if, if, if anybody out there has only seen Psycho and The Birds and what was the other big one that everybody always watches? Well, Psycho and The Birds. And uh, I know a lot of people for a long time thought North by Northwest was. Oh, yeah. Uh, if that's the only thing, if that's the only thing you've seen, definitely go back and watch his older I mean, that's the one thing that I'm glad I got out of this episode, this show, was yes. I went back and watched the old, and they're they're great. Yeah, they're great stories, great characters. The all the actresses and actresses are great. They're great. Escape awesome. is fun, yeah. and uh, they're they're beautiful uh, filmmaking. A lot of uh, they're not short. He didn't make short films. I don't well, think I don't think I watched anything that was under an hour and thirty. <laughs> well, that's short enough, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, For some reason, I was thinking, oh, 1945, it's probably a, this is probably going to be a 35 minute movie. <laughs> well, concision is an important part of making these things work. Yeah. Something like it ca uh, to catch a thief, that definitely felt long. Yeah. Uh, that it seemed to me long. It kind of, kind of got draggy. Uh, and I won't even go into Topaz and Torn Curtain. Yeah. I think that was my problem though. I was like, oh, do I have time to watch all these? Because then I would pull it up and it would say, Hour and thirty-five, and I'd get into it. I'm like, it was over. I was like, wow, it was great. You know, it didn't feel it like was I was under for yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When he was at his best, he made some very uh, fast-moving, entertaining films. Because I suppose modern audiences might find these movies boring. Boring, yeah. But I mean, I've heard some people uh, online, some folks say that they think Psycho is boring. I don't know how they how they could feel yeah, that I, way. But... I have no idea. Probably because it wasn't in color. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> they I mean, probably it... like the updated version. Which people, is the exact same thing. <laughs> people have all sorts of strange ideas. I mean, the first time I heard somebody say that they don't watch black and white movies, I thought, how could that be? Yeah, how could, yeah, why? What, what would be the, I mean, they're making movies now, draining all the color, and they color movies, but they're all <laughs> yeah. blue or green. Green, so, yeah. But why would you have any sort of pre prejudice? If you're going to go off to see that, why, and, and you got your money ready, why would you be reluctant to uh, watch a black I love, and white? I love black and white. I love the way that looks. I think it's great. Yeah. Well, they they were actually made to be black and white movies. It wasn't yeah. just the absence of color. They shot <laughs> yeah. them in a certain way so that they look great as black and white movies. So yeah, it definitely conjures up a certain feeling, a certain atmosphere. I mean, I mean God knows the uh, Universal horror movies. What would what what, what would they have been? <laughs> yeah. at that great black and white photography. Maybe I'll release this episode in black and white. <laughs> That's a thought. <laughs> that would help your ratings. I'm Do sure. a version of it. Yeah. All right, so where can everybody find uh, your black and white movies at? <laughs> well, now I'm thinking I should go back. And <laughs> there you go. Yeah. That's the one thing I forgot. Uh, uh, Demon Resurrection is available on Tubi TV. That's a, a supernatural thriller with 
uh, zombies and, and uh, cults and uh, monster babies. And that's on Tubi TV and it's on uh, Amazon Prime and Zumo TV. And uh, my, uh, my first film, Sleepless Nights, which is actually coming up on its, I think it's actually reached its 23rd anniversary, 23 years since we started production on it, at least. Uh, I just recently re-edited it and it's now in the hands of Film Hub. So I'm expecting that probably in the next month or two, it'll be popping up on some of the streaming platforms, probably Amazon first. Right. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed that they won't keep us waiting too long. But uh, people can find me on Facebook under my name, William Hopkins, and they can find my films, Demon Resurrection, and also Sleepless Nights, which we are calling Sleepless Nights Revamped, since it's been remastered and re-edited. Those both have pages on Facebook and on Twitter. So if anybody's interested in keeping track of when Sleepless Nights Revamped finally comes out, uh, Facebook and Twitter are the best places to go for that information. And if you do a Google search under my name or under uh, either one of the film's titles, you'll be able to find out all sorts of stuff about us. And where what what can we tell the audience about your exploits? So, uh, well, you can find I'm on <clears throat> I'm on Twitter thirteen thirteen Inc. And of course, we've got a Facebook page for the show. Uh, of course, I'm on Facebook under my name, and we have uh, you can find the show on any of the streaming platforms: Google, uh, iTunes, Spotify. Just Google it, and you'll find it. And then, of course, we're on YouTube. I finally put up my first actual video that I edited, edited sure. together. Put it up there fine. for the uh, Hellblazers episode. So you can go on there and watch that. Yes. I put some other smaller clips on there. So so we're all over the place. All over the place. We're everywhere. <laughs> first step towards world domination. That's right. Yeah. Well, anyway, uh, uh, this will be another episode to add to the mix, I guess. Yeah. I'll have to get it, probably put another two or two days work into it just to yes. get it up here. But it, it will be up at some point. Now you know why I'm so far behind. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, th I think if, if, if I can get a faster computer, I think that'd be help me out a little bit. That would probably help. It's, yes. it's the export time that's killing me. <laughs> I wonder if my, my, my computer that I do that sort of work on is about 15 years old. I wonder if uh, modern computers uh, really would export mpeg4 files more more quickly it probably would i would say with more memory and a faster video card probably help out i hope so i hate to think that as i get into my senior years <laughs> yeah. i'm spending days exporting mpeg4 Export, files. yeah <laughs> I don't know. yeah i would say faster computers would probably help out well if anybody in the sound of my voice wants to send me some money for a new computer <laughs> feel free you know where to find me yeah just find him on facebook that's right <laughs> All right, well, this is a fun episode, and uh, until next week, we'll continue to watch the good, the bad, and the cheaply made. <laughs>